just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. We've all heard about players going on heaters. Who are some recent examples? I'll ask Rob DiPietro about that and a whole lot more. Next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way. Because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, June the 16th. It's show number 21 of the 2023 fantasy baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have a two-part feature expert interview with Rob DiPietro from the Deadpool Hitter Patreon and podcast and the Launch Angle podcast. In part one, we'll discuss the Ellie Palooza weekend and rating new young pitchers. And in part two, Rob and I will talk about players going on heaters over the last couple of weeks, and he'll have his boons and banes for this weekend's fab runs. We'll also have our weekly fantasy news update with Ray Murphy of BaseballHQ.com, looking at American League hitters like Marcus Semyon of Texas, Vinny Pasquantino of Kansas City, and more, and American League pitchers including Tanner Bybee of Cleveland, Christian Javier of Houston, and Liam Hendricks of Chicago. Then it's over to the National League with hitter news, including Jorge Alfaro, now of Colorado, and Charlie Blackman, also of Colorado, and National League pitchers, including the last spot in the L.A. rotation comes up again, and Sandy Alcantara of Miami. We'll also have our regular commentaries from the guys at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Minor League Minute, Baseball HQ scouting team member Rob Gordon looks at Oakland catcher Tyler Soderstrom. In the frequent flyer, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Baltimore third baseman Jordan Westberg. And in extra innings, I'll have another extra innings quiz, this time looking at oddities in the year-to-date standings. It's another big Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday full edition, it's part one of our feature expert interview with Rob DiPietro from the Deadpool Hitter Patreon and podcast and the Launch Angle podcast. Rob, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. It's been a while. Hey, Patrick. Thank you for having me. Of course, it hasn't been a while since you and I talked on a podcast. We just did this last week on your podcast. It was a lot of fun. And now the tables are turned. Uh, You're in the interviewee chair where it's all fun, and I'm in the host chair. We're doing all the work. So uh, how many drafts (laughs) are you playing this year? And overall, how are you doing? Uh, So this year I have um, seven fab leagues. And... There's been a mix of, of, of good and bad. I have um, two main events, two auction championships, and three online championships, which are 12-team leagues. And, um, you know, have have some teams that are in the top three, uh, some teams that are hovering in the middle. So it's, uh, I think 
it's it's a mix. Nothing really, really out of the blue, like out of the mix, and I can't climb back, but I'm hanging in there. Do you have any hitters that are in common across most of your good teams, your successful teams? Hitters, common hitters. Um, I did a I did a good job diversifying because I didn't want to tie up too many of my assets um in into multiple leagues. So I have Glaber Torres though. He's a multiple um rostered player. I have JTR who always helps at catcher. Um and fortunately right now Spencer Strider is getting hitting around a little bit, but um he he's one as as bad as he's been in terms of um what people have expected from him, he's still anchoring my strikeouts and, and stuff like that. So um it's yeah, so I've I've done a good job though of spreading out, you know, which players I have on multiple teams. I've heard a school of thought that says you can't do that because if you if you diversify successfully, it means you've got like four good players on each team and four terrible ones because you <laughs> spread them all over the place. And that, uh, it's wiser to like just make your bets and throw as many of those same guys on all your teams as you can. I don't know what the correct answer is. I suspect it's, there is no correct answer really. It's just how you feel in the moment because a lot of times you think, well, I'm going to get Spencer Strider in this draft. And then the first guy off the board from pitchers is, is Spencer Strider. And then you go, oh, now I got to look somewhere else. You know, it's, yeah, I think you you can't make such detailed plans ahead of drafts. I don't think because the board will always mess with your mind. Right, the board always dictates what I'm going to do. I go in there with a, a certain attack plan of um, options for each round, and um, you know maybe an x amount of pitchers versus x amount of batters by a specific uh, round. But that I'm not really holding true to that. Obviously, if I wanted four pitchers in the first ten rounds, and the tenth round came, and you know. Uh, a hit of value is is just staring me in the face, and I'm I'm not going to force my hand there. Um, but I actually do, um, you know, I have a couple more guys I kind of remembered was Randy Rosarena and um, Lane Thomas, which is actually a guy I have on multiple teams. Um, but you know, I I find that um, I don't like try not to diversify. It's just if if it presents itself, where I have two similar players in the same range, if they're uh, a, a quarter of an SGP apart, right? It's like 0.2 SGP apart, and but uh, I'll, I'll I'll pick one and I'll pick the other. It's um for me, I think it it's good to just go off your ranks, but go off of you know how you're building your team as well. Yeah, I feel the same way. And if I'm going to actually gang up and put the same guy on multiple teams, it's going to be somebody well down the draft, somebody I'm taking a bit of a flyer on because I figure that. I, I don't want to take a second rounder who kills me in all three drafts because uh, Edwin Diaz, for instance, I got in the in an early round in one of my drafts, and I'm glad I didn't do it in all three because then I would have sunk all three of my drafts. And as it was, he sunk one. But uh, d- down the you know twentieth twentieth round and later, or dollar days in auctions, I feel a little more comfortable saying, you know, I really like player X in this position for all my teams because. If he doesn't pan out, I can easily dump him in all my teams too. It's not like I have to try to replace, for example, an Edwin Diaz or somebody like that. Right. Absolutely. Totally makes sense. I actually forgot my most rostered player in uh, all my leagues was Brian Reynolds. Uh, somehow he skipped my mind. But I have him in five out of my seven fab leagues. And just because in the auction league too, he went for 
so low uh, compared to how I had him valued um, and and draft season two in, in a early draft champion season. He was just always there at like pick a hundred. And to me, he was, he was ranked in top of my 60, top 60. So there was always um, a smash for me there. And uh, obviously, you know what, a guy like him, I'm just uh, not looking for him to anchor any specific category, but he just chips in so well in all of them, you know, that uh, he's just such a, a good, valuable player. It's funny that you said you forgot about him because it seems like everybody forgets about him at draft. (laughs) And, uh, I heard Dave Potts on a podcast. He's a terrific guest on podcasts and he's really smart. He's a very successful player, of course, as, as we all know. And, uh, he was talking about Brian Reynolds is his favorite player for fantasy baseball purposes, because everybody forgets him every year. And all he does is go out and get his 90 RBIs, his 85 runs scored at 275 or 280 or whatever it is. You know, homers, steals, like you said, he contributes across the board without making a big splash really anywhere. It's kind of like the ideal fantasy player, really, because he's always going four rounds too late. Yes, I I, I feel that way. And actually felt the same way about Gleyber Torres in some of the drafts. And so actually it's funny because um, I, I picked him in my first main event, um, which was a Thursday night in Las Vegas. Um, no, sorry. I I got him in an auction in in an auction league in New York on March seventeenth, and when I went to Las Vegas the next weekend, um, he w- I was presented with him <laughs> again uh, in the main event at at like pick one thirty or one twenty something, and just. I didn't understand why people were passing up on 25 homers and 12 steals <laughs> up the middle, you know, then I, every right. time. And so then in my, in my next auction draft, my, um, which was kind of one of those drafts where I was trying to get some of the players that I missed out on the whole weekend or the whole drafting season. And um, he was there sitting, you know, at uh, $11 and I had him valued as a $20 player. <laughs> I was like, well, I'm just going to have to get him again. <laughs> Well, you have to, right? I mean, even if you don't (laughs) want to kind of sometimes, I mean, there are reasons not to make that decision because of injury concerns or, you know, guys changed roles or changed teams and you're, you know, goes from a Cincinnati to Oakland, for instance, if he's a hitter and all of a sudden the home runs don't look as possible. But if the guy's staying on the same team and is pretty much going to have the same role, I don't understand why people just think that they're going to fall off. I'm doing a story for Baseball HQ right now about uh, Jorge Mateo in my uh, Tout Wars American League auction. It's a 12-team only league and and uh, seven bucks. This is a guy who was a $21 player last year, and I thought, if nothing else, he's going to steal those bases again, you know, and with the new rules, he might even steal more bases. I know the rest of it's not super attractive. And then he, of course, he came out of the gate like a, like a horse on fire. Gosh. And uh, then in May, he started stinking out the joint because you, you never know what's going to happen. But I'm, I'm always surprised every year how the community looks at some guys who have a fairly decent track record and just goes, nah, I'm not interested. I'll take somebody else who's a, like, for instance, uh, Von Grissom went two rounds ahead of Mateo and 15 teamers in NFBC. How, how can you do that? <laughs> you know, I, I know it, it, it's so funny how much we get captivated by what's happening now. And you no, know, I'm not going to say shiny new toy, because I think that that phrase gets kind of a little overused. Um, we just kind of fall in love with, um, what's happening at the, at the exact time, like when I was in Las Vegas, Anthony Volpe 
with basically cementing himself as an option for the Yankees and probably the starting shortstop. And even, even if you had a little bit of inkling that you liked him before, that's just going to trigger your brain to say, wow, this is, you know, I'm in now, you know, and it kind of, you know, I, I try to peel myself back and because even through my, my rankings and, whatever I'm looking at to evaluate players, I'm thinking in my head, you know, this doesn't make sense that this is going so high, you know, that he's going past these veterans that are, are, are in the league have product like produced and are, are stable guys and who have great skill sets. And then I peel myself back though. And I try to say, okay, like what, what could be the best outcome here? And like, what are these other fantasy baseball players thinking in their brain because i you know i think it's easy when we always say uh are oh, you crazy or, or this this strategy is nuts but i think um a good thing to do is to play that devil's advocate it's to just flip on the other side and say what's the best outcome here what are, what what's getting everyone else so hyped you know and it's usually you know okay starting shortstop on new york yankees that kind of gave him you know that initial helium and then with the stolen bases and power in the minors so it just you know it it just drives it drives up everything that's happening and in las vegas i experienced it for the first time this year it's just how much any little news you know reed detmers is you know oh wow spring training velo you know 98 here it is and then boom he goes from 180 adp to 100 and he doubles his auction that uh dollar range and it was just it's just funny to see that happen in such a small period of time i was talking about fabbing a, a couple of weeks ago here on the show and uh my guest said one of the things about fab is if the guy has a good start on Sunday, his price doubles, you know, and there's no real reason for it. It could have just been a fluke, but if a guy, you know, goes four for four with a home run and a stolen base on Sunday, then his price skyrockets on that night's fab. And if, if he does it on Thursday, not so much. I totally agree with the old Sunday tax. It's so big. I try to mention that a lot when I, I do a fab pod, we'll get to talk about that later with my Patreon, but, and I try to remind people of that, the, the old Sunday tax. And there's, there's also the, the reverse, right? There's the Sunday um, death line or bad line where um, it can even be like a player like Brian Wu got called up and people were so excited and he had a, a terrible outing and he was so quiet on the fab front. And it, But if he had struck out nine, it, it would have been a totally different story. That brings me to the whole idea of uh, fabbing because I know you've been talking about it a lot as we all have. And uh, I'd like to start with what was your take on the Ellie Palooza bidding on the weekend? probably one of the coolest weeks to participate in fantasy baseball with just any baseball to just see what kind of impact one player could have on not only a player, but everyone who plays fantasy baseball, everyone who follows baseball could see this generational talent, you know, come up and so much hype, so much excitement. And it, it was everything I thought it was going to be. Um, I, you know, I pay real close attention to the fab, uh, trends in the main events and the high stakes leagues and everything that I saw told me that it was going to be a, like a record breaking weekend. <laughs> and it kind of was, and I got involved a little bit. I got him in one league in my online championship. Uh, it's a $750 online championship. And um, if I had the money in, in, in some spots, um, I would have really, really, 
came close to getting him, but um, unfortunately I did not. And part of me also too, just a discussion we have to have in our head, you know, uh, my first question on myself was, okay, how much am I comfortable leaving for the rest of the season? Once I established that, I gave myself, I, I looked at each team and say, okay, what what do I really need the rest of the season? It's okay, this team, I don't like my starting pitching depth. I might mean I might need a closer. Eh, eh, no, can't do it, you know. And just go through every team and kind of do a little check mark of. And then there was one league where I was like, okay, I could do it. I here it is. And you know what? He's not available in that league. <laughs> so you, yeah, there was there was like a perfect circumstance where I would have gone all in and pushed the chips in and. Uh, I knew he wasn't available in that league, but I just, I knew that league was perfect for it. And I was like, man, this would have been, that would have been great. Um, but it, it was fascinating just to see how everyone participated in it. We saw um, owners who have been picked up a player in two months, <laughs> just come out of the woodwork and, and, you know, throw out six, $700. And, you know, while we could say, oh, this guy came out of nowhere and, and messed up the whole balance of the league, we could also maybe say that uh, he was waiting for this moment. You know, <laughs> we don't have the opportunity to act that person. So uh, it, uh, it was a fun weekend, though, for Ellie Dale Cruz and Abbott and all those players. In some leagues, NFBC leagues, that Ellie Dale Cruz wasn't available this weekend because he was either drafted before this league or drafted and dropped and then reclaimed earlier. That's what happened in one league I'm in where the same guy drafted him at draft, dropped him right after the draft, and then got him for eight or nine, uh, partway through the season, like in early May, I think, and, and got him back. And so he was out of the pool. Do you think that's going to be a strategy in the future where, you know, you deliberately grab uh, the the likely candidates to be the Ellie De La Cruz's of the future, whether you keep them on your reserve for the whole time because that's got its strategic implications, but also just grab him, drop him, and get him back. Is that going to be a tactic that we start seeing more of? It could be. I think it's already put into place, honestly. I know a lot of people who kind of think about that a little bit. Um, but I think you also have to deal with then other people realizing that and they can do the same thing, you know, um, then you'll have to, you'll have to compete with your, your league mates either way. Um, but that could be something that we see more going forward for sure. Especially if it's a player, uh, maybe you think it's a little further out, uh, than what the consensus is. And, but you feel like he got a quicker path to the MLB. So maybe you do that. You pick him up in the draft, you drop him the first week, and then three weeks into the season, two weeks into the season, you take him back on. But, you know, to me, I feel like at that point, you know, why wouldn't you just hold? Um, that could be argued as well. In the league that Elliot Del Cruz was already um, taken in my league, yeah, it was the, it was the uh, Super Auction Championship, and he was drafted. He was dropped on on the first weekend, the first full weekend of fab on April 7th. And then we picked up May 7th by a different team. Um, so, and for like $9, I'm looking back right now and where I, was, I tried to put myself in the position of, I try to think these things out. Where was I, you know, when, when he was available and what was I looking at? What was I thinking um, and not like in, in terms of like slapping myself on the hand and saying, Oh, you, you, you weren't paying attention or you did a good job. You didn't do a good job. It just, I was trying to, uh, I was thinking too much on a weekly scale. Uh, and I think sometimes I fall into that trap where I'm just grinding out week to week 
and trying to maximize playing time and just, um, you know, how can I fab the best way? And I think I lost sight of rest of season pitcher with Ellie that I, I probably could have, um, you know, in hindsight been like, yeah, let me try to stash him. But my team didn't dictate at the moment. And I had a bunch of, I had like um, middle infield wasn't a spot where I, it was probably my strongest part of my team. So I felt a little, you know, uh, who am I going to get rid of? Right. Who, who am I gonna, not going to start over him? Uh, all those questions. I had the same thought when it happened in the one league, as I mentioned, and I went through like, why did I miss the, how did I miss this guy? Because it was well into May, like the first or second week of May before the rebuy took place. And it was the same guy who dropped him. So I think clearly it was part of a strategy or, or a tactic for use this year. But I thought to myself, why did this guy slip by me? I knew who he was and I knew that there was a good chance he was killing it in the minors. But I think part of the issue is I'm pretty diligent about looking at the, at the, at the list and going through everything. But when you, when I load my spreadsheet with the downloaded NFPC free agent list, it's default sort is owned and started, right? So the, the players at the top of the list are the guys who are widely owned and the, and, and, or widely started. And at that point of the season, Ellie Dealer Cruz would have been 0% owned and 0% started. And my, my default way of dealing with this to get rid of their 700 or so names on the list is I just delete everybody who's 0% owned and 0% started because I presume the wisdom of the crowds is telling me there's nobody on this list that you're going to want anyway. You might as well focus your attention on guys who are at least somewhat populated in the actual league. And I'm going to have to change that approach. I'm going to have to figure out some way to do uh, uh, Excel V lookups to make sure that any of the possible young prospects are included in my search of that free agent list, which adds yep. some more work, unfortunately. Yeah, no, it does take, yeah, but you could get your BHQ, uh, you know, minors rankings, right? Just like you said, and do do, do a quick, uh, quick V lookup and, and, and try to, you know, like at least not delete those players. <laughs> No, exactly right. Yeah. And then, and then it's decision time. You need to look at them and say, how soon, how much, mm -hmm. how much help? Do I need this position? Like you said, with the middle infield situation, does my team need this? What's my opportunity cost? All of those questions we always ask each other. You mentioned Andrew Abbott and uh, I read on Twitter that some really good fantasy players in the NFBC made a pretty significant blunder in bidding on what they thought was Andrew Abbott. Oh, yes. Uh, a lot of players bidded on Corey Abbott, um, pitcher, and then on the Nationals, who's in AAA. <laughs> and actually, the first time I recognized it was um, I went to my fab results. And, and you know, n normally at like 10.01, 10.02, you can go to fab results on the NFPC. 10 o'clock is when it locks. And you you can, you know, see the results. And um, Ellie Del Cruz kind of broke the system because we weren't able to get on until about 10, 13. Um, it's like, it's such a long day on Sunday. Um, uh, you know, it's starting to get nice here in New Jersey. So it's like, it could be beach days. And then I got to do my fab article, my fab pod. And then my, you know, like continue my fab and, fi and finalize. And usually on Sunday night, I just want to check the results, like put it into my Excel sheet and go to sleep. <laughs> Cause it's such a long day and I'm just waiting there. And like, oh man, this Ellie Dela Cruz literally broke the NFBC site <laughs> with his bidding. But yeah, so I go to my team 
my first result and I see I did a double take. I said, oh, this is interesting. Um, the first thing I saw was that, that there was no backup bid on a player. Like I didn't even see the player name. All I saw was no backup bid. And I said, I look over to the left and I said, oh, no. Corey Abbott, <laughs> you know, and I, you think you said, Oh no, <laughs> how about the guy who did it? I know, I know. And, and, and it's an, and it's an NFBC veteran, you know, it's a really good player. So it's uh, just, and no, I've been, I, I make mistakes. Like the biggest mistakes I make on fab is I forget to just finalize. I go like this, there's, there's um, something under the transaction. It's just a pending fab. And I forget to just kind of look it over real quick. My biggest thing is I've twice duplicated um, a drop. And so I might've missed out on an ad on a player because I already got that one guy. And then the, the next one didn't count because he was off my team. And that's, you know, because I just hit the copy feature. And so I list out, you know, okay, this is my list. I want three times. And then I click the drops and I'll forget to do the drop. So then I go to my second main event team and same thing. See, and this one's at the top of the list now, because now Ellie De La Cruz is also gone in this main event that I was in. Um, and then it's the first one listed. Oh, so boy. yeah, it was 166 for <laughs> Corey Abbott with no backup bid. And then I see the next one is Andrew Abbott for 87. I said, what? And I look over and it's the same gentleman. And I said, oh, this guy is going to have a meltdown when he sees this. Because I had a meltdown for him, honestly. I, I felt it. I said, damn, this is this. I have a couple of bad starts in a day and I just want to shut baseball off. I can't imagine what that would have made me feel like. So I just hope that he, he, he just moves past that and, and just able to finish out the season. But yeah, that's a big, that's a big mistake. And it, it sucked that had to happen. I saw on Twitter, there was some debate going on about what to do when somebody makes a different kind of mistake, which is dropping the wrong player Yeah, where they, they've chosen to make a, a bid on somebody, which is fair and good. But instead of, in this instance, instead of dropping Corey Abbott, they would drop Andrew Abbott. And then there's a big, big hullabaloo about it because now you could conceivably, if you click the wrong drop, you're giving a great player to somebody else in your league who's got more money than you. And people were complaining and saying a guy who's dropped under those circumstances who clearly was accidental, that move should either be reversed or at the very least, the, the dropped player should just be out of the pool for the whole rest of the season. What do you think about how to handle a, an accidental drop? Well, I've had it done. I've, I've accidentally dropped the Med Rosario um, and it was an online championship and I contacted the NFBC and I had Eddie Rosario on my team. So that was the thing. It's not like, uh, that was my drop and it's not like I, you know, which randomly picked the guy. Yeah. I made the mistake. Sure. But I know that it's been done before because I was in, uh, in the last two years, there was two separate incidents where they reversed a drop for, for a player. And I think that's fine because I think like trying to reverse something like this, like Corey Abbott would, would be a little too much. And because it would have just reshaped the whole fab list um, after that, the fabbing after yeah. that. So oh, the yeah. dropping is, is definitely something that I'm not proud of. I was very sheepishly writing that email too. I didn't want to, <laughs> I felt, uh, I felt terrible, but you know, I, I saw it happen in my league. So it's like, okay, at least let me try. Like uh, I, I got the wrong 
Rosario, but now it just may end up being that I did drop the uh, drop the right Rosario. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, could be uh, Ahmed Rosario so it hasn't been that great. So, uh, how did the NFPC resolve the issue with Corey Abbott this time? I I read somewhere that somebody thought that they shouldn't reverse the move, but they may give him back his fab as some kind of consolation prize. Did anything happen with those Corey Abbott drops that you heard of? I have not heard. I have not inquired. Um, uh, I'm, I'm not in the forums that much. Um, been too, been really busy this year. So I haven't like had the extra time to just bounce around and check out what's, what's going on in the scene. Well, we mentioned Andrew Abbott. How are you ranking all the new young pitchers who've come up this season so far? And it's been a real crop. I'm telling you, Bryce Miller, Bobby Miller, Tanner Bybee, notwithstanding the terrible outing he had on Wednesday, uh, Logan Allen, uh, Abbott, we mentioned, Brian Wu, you mentioned, A.J. smith Shaver down in Atlanta, even Ben Joyce. Uh, these are all really good young pitchers. How would you rank them just quickly? Bobby Miller, Bryce Miller, and then I would go Logan Allen, Tanner Bybee, Brian Wu, Andrew Abbott, AJ Smith Sharver. But I I think Abbott and Wu can be kind of flip flopped and maybe even maybe you could see Bybee dropping a little bit. He's had a rough couple of starts, as you mentioned, uh, but there's definitely been some differences in his in his actual pitches. Um and so but the Millers are my top two. Bobby Miller has been pretty much everything we could have hoped for in a free agent pickup or um, the Dodgers could have asked for. He, he's going long into games, striking out guys. He's being efficient. Um, got a league average walk rate at 8%. That's just really helping. And uh, Bryce Miller, I know he's he had a couple of mix-ups, um, two bad starts that he gave up a ton of runs. But I, I really like the way um, he gets through games. I trust that Mariner pitching mill that they have right now. And I think that they have enough taken in place there that they really know how to head up their pitches for success. Um, and I think that even if we don't get big strikeout numbers, like George Kirby last year wasn't a huge strikeout guy, but he didn't walk anyone. He struck out enough and that K-minus walk was in between 18 and 20, and he was getting through games efficiently. Got a great bullpen, too, which leads to good turnovers for possible wins as well. So I think the two Millers stand out for me right now above everybody else. Are you at all concerned with Bryce Miller only seeming to be a two-pitch pitcher at this moment? I know it didn't seem to bother Spencer Strider too much in the early going, but uh, how do you feel about two-pitch starters? Um, well, you know what, I've, I've spoken to a lot of people about this on my podcast and just, you know, um, and talking and, um, one gentleman, Jeff Ponce, who, who works for baseball America now, formerly of prospects live. He, you know, he kind of had to think in, again, his mind, he was always saying like, how much bad does throwing a third pitch do for you if it's not adding anything, it's not anything of value, especially if your other two pitchers are so much better, you know, like that um, anytime you throw this other pitch, it's kind of taking from you, you know, from your overall arsenal. Um, I think, you know, with Bryce Miller, I think that we'll, we will see some more secondaries coming you know, like as we go along, I think there's one game, a couple of games where he dipped down his fastball usage just a little bit, but 
overall, I mean, he's thrown the change up 12% of the time, the slider 11% of the time, but there's also seemed to be some kind of uh, mis not misclassification, but like it depends where you look. Um, they have different percentages or different usages listed for him. Like baseball's Havant has one thing, uh, you know, Brooks baseball has something else <laughs> and then pitcher list has something else and fan graphs has something else. And it's, I guess all depends on the, what, what we deem in these pitchers are like what the sweeper is, is that, you know, the sweeper and the slider kind of get bunched together a lot. The sweeper and the curveball also are kind of, I think what, what from what I've heard from, you know, Sarah saying too, is what people are mixing up a lot because that has characteristics of the curveball. So it's picking up. It just, it's very, it's very hard when I think you're trying to analyze pitchers if you're not really fully um, like a pitching expert or uh, or an arsenal expert. If you're just looking on Vangraft or looking at the font and scraping your data and you're like, well, what is it? Like, what what is this pitch? But I think the fastball is good enough that um, he just has to throw in. I think a little bit. I think he's got to set up his uh, attack versus lefties a little bit different. Um, it seems like when he attacks them, the slider or the sweeper, whatever he throws, um, could be both. That they kind of tend to like go too much into the bat path of of lefties, which happens. You know, that's I, I think I'm not mistaken. Sliders and sweepers have the biggest difference in in um, platoon and 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 handedness uh, between the other pitches, like from righties to lefties. Um, and I think that once he adjusts that, I think he can be even good. But I really love a fastball. It's got one of the best vertical movements in the league, and he throws it at such from an over-the-top kind of angle. And, like, he, he's so far on the first base side, too. It's really, um, you know, I think he's I think he's good. I think the two blips are, are something that people are definitely harnessing on. And, you know, I think there's just, just this funny game that's being played and it's kind of what my tweet had to do with, but like, it's, it's all about crapping on whoever spent, you know, three, $400 on Bryce Miller and, you know, touting that you got like Louis Vol in for 70 or 90. Um, and it just, uh, it's, it's funny because the overbidding thing is a kind of on a rant, but a lot of people talk about the overbids and, oh, you're nuts for spending this much money. Um, you know, sometimes we have assets and we decide how to use them, right? Um, the Astros uh, have, uh, it's just, I, <laughs> this is just like kind of the correlation I made to it. Like the Astros um, have such cheap assets, right? So they overpaid for Jose Abreu because they were able to, <laughs> right? Yeah, you got the money. You got the money. So anyway, it's just a, I think that's a lot of, um, what's being attributed to all these players getting so hyper focused, uh, hyper, hyper analyzed is that, um, there's so much more one of you, like one of your previous guests, Zach Waxman, you know, he, he, he writes that beautiful fab report and it's, it's out there. A lot of other people, you know, I do a fab on um, a pod on fab. My friend Dom writes an article on my website about the fab recaps. It's out there. So more and more people are in tune to it. So I think more and more people are like, Oh, you know, let's, let's dissect this picture. And every time he has a blow up, it's like, you were wrong. So I see a lot of that going on. It's funny because we're going to be wrong a lot, you know? <laughs> sure. What young players 
are you looking forward to seeing in the next wave of call-ups, which everybody seems to be expecting after the Super 2 deadline, which nobody quite knows where it is, but <laughs> it's sometime coming up. <laughs> it's sometime coming up, right? Um, I, I'm, I'm interested in, I guess, Chris, Christian Encarnacion Strand is a, a guy I've, I took in a lot of draft champions, so I'm kind of waiting for him to come up to help my power um, power categories. Um a couple other players too. I think we talked about them in the launch angle pod, like how much the Orioles are just stacked with all this talent and um, just waiting to see how they're going to divvy up all the work for like, Jordan Westberg and Colton Kowser if they, they come up as well. Um, and, you know, one guy, I don't know if we'll see because his age really doesn't dictate that but watching him play hearing other analysts talk about him and looking at his numbers is jackson churio on the brewers i don't know if they would do it or if they were tempted he's only 19 um but he probably would be one of their best outfielders <laughs> if he came up so i'm i'm kind of um you know i think last year we saw a big precedent set with the orioles and the diamondbacks calling up Cor corbin carroll and gunner henderson and giving them that 100 at back keeping their keeping their eligibility for the compensation that they receive this year, right? If a player does really well and comes in a top three in a rookie of the year or whatever the compensation exactly is. And I think that's going to spur a lot of, I mean, we see how aggressive teams are now just been this whole season with, and I think it's going to continue in September too. You'll see a lot of a uh, hundred plate appearance guys, see what they have for next year. And then they can make that, determination in their head and how they're going to set up their rosters that following year, the MLB teams. Okay. Like we're going to have this guy up. So we saw what he could do. And so I think we're going to see all, a lot more prospects just come up. And I just didn't think too, like, I think it's the right thing to do for teams. Cause especially if you look around on some of the, all the rosters of the MLB teams, and you're just wondering why they're holding on to a lot of the like retread veterans that have been on five, six, seven teams, um, I don't know. I know the cost control of the players and the service time manipulations, but you, you're going to have a better team if you, if, if you bring most of these young kids up to play. I was going to say, maybe uh, the Brewers don't need Churio because they just signed Ray Tapia. <laughs> <laughs> All their problems are solved there. Exactly. <laughs> You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Rob DiPietro from the Pull Hitter Patreon and podcast and the Launch Angle podcast. And you mentioned uh, Bryce Miller and, and uh, a couple of times, and on Twitter this week, you compared Miller and Louis Varland and someone said, well, Varland is not that good and uh, Miller is not that good. And then someone later said that Varland had had a rough stretch of tough opponents. How do you calibrate assessing and making your expectations of pitchers based on what are still pretty short runs and pretty small samples? Very short runs. You're 100% right, Patrick. I think that's a lot of the things I have to realize sometimes, too, getting excited about um, one start of a young kid and like, oh, look look at where he placed his fastball and look, look how many whiffs he got on the slider. And, um, and maybe it's because of the amount of veteran pitchers that are being, you know, destroyed every day <laughs> that we're really trying to cling on to these younger guys, but, um, it's tough. You know, I think, I think with what we have on our hand to, to view, it's kind of hard to roll it into one overall number, right? A lot of us trust the projections 
Um, I don't trust them 100%, but I trust them to get me to a good idea of what a player could be. And then, you know, you have all your different metrics. Uh, you can have all your staples, your K-minus walk, your Sierra, uh, your zone contact. O swing and whatever you can, but now there's even more data, you know, on the pitches, how, how fast it travels in the zone and how, what the angle is. And I think, I think you just have to kind of shrink it down to a couple of things, you know, um, when there's so much on the plate you could just, you need to pick what you want to prioritize and try to focus in on, on, on those things. And I mean, I, I go into big, big, you know, big rabbit holes on things i i don't look i can't look at one set of data i need to keep going it's just the way my brain works i want to know everything about a player you know and with triple a data too now available and you right. could see the stat cast data for triple a players you know there's there's people out there who have um you know uh google sheets and and data sets on on minor leaguers as well so uh, everything is out there. All we want is more, more, more. And, and that time, you know, uh, are we getting closer to player accuracy, right? Or are we getting further because there's so many decision points now to make? A few years ago, actually a lot of years ago, when some of this data first came out, I was curious about what percentage of pitches out of the zone the pitcher got swings on and what percentage of pitches in the zone he got swings and misses on. I was really big and still am on uh, results. And I thought, this is a, seems to me a really sensible way of going about it because a pitcher who gets swings and misses in the zone and gets uh, swings at all uh, out of the zone, because even if they hit it, it's weak contact, I thought was a pretty good thing. And it never went anywhere. And then I just saw the other day somebody else has come out with the, basically the same exact thing. So might be something else that we can put into our toolboxes uh, Hey, Rob, this has been terrific so far. I got to cut out and go do the news. Can you come back in a few minutes and we'll talk about your website and we'll talk about players doing heaters? No, we have to stay right now, of course, Patrick. Go ahead. Rob DiPietro writes quite a bit for the Dead Pull Hitter Patreon and hosts the Pull Hitter and Launch Angle podcasts. He'll be back later in the show to talk about players going on heaters over the last 14 days and his boons and banes for this weekend's fab runs. Coming up next, we have our Market Watch Player News Reports with Ray Murphy from BaseballHQ.com. That's next on Baseball HQ Radio. But right now, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about an item of great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Lineup Outlook feature, analyst Greg Jewett, who's coming soon to this podcast, looks at how Baltimore has adapted its batting order with a focus on Gunnar Henderson in the leadoff slot. And then he'll look at Spencer Torkelson's resurgence in Detroit. The lineup outlook is another great resource at BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our weekly news review and update. And here with the latest is Ray Murphy, co-general manager, projections expert, writer, and analyst at BaseballHQ.com. Ray, welcome back to the show. Happy Friday, PD. It's always a happy Friday and uh, has been a happy Friday for a few years now, every Friday, for Texas second baseman Marcus Semyon, been one of the most reliable fantasy producers out there, and his current $32 5 by 5 pace would make the third straight year for him above the $30 mark, 
but he's also age 32 and he's getting to where we start to wonder about continuing that elite level of production. He's got 10 home runs, seven stolen bases, a hundred combined runs plus 111 combined runs plus RBIs and a 283 batting average, which is still pretty darn good. Corbin Young looked at Semyon in this week's Facts and Flukes coverage of the American League. What does Corbin say about Semyon's skills versus his outcomes and, of course, the age question? Certainly no signs of him showing age-related decline at this point, right, which you rattled off there is uh, super impressive. Um, I should point out that Corbin's uh, Fact and Fluke piece that covers Semyon here is uh, a free article this week on the site, so even... uh, non-subscribers who want to get a taste of this analysis should come and take a look. Uh, but what Corbin said is, you know, as as I was kind of alluding to, Semyon looks awfully consistent. Uh, you know, in the past, you know, you remember back in 2021, he had a 45 home run eruption that kind of propped up his value. Um, but that was driven by a high fly ball rate that has kind of leveled off. So the good news is he's kind of trading uh, some – of the batting average penalty that comes with all of those fly balls for sort of a more well-rounded skill set. You know, having more ground balls is leading to more base hits, a few less home runs, but his actual batting average is up around 290 and his expected batting average is 271. So we've come a long way from the 240s. Um, he's also making more contact, which is only good news. Uh, four to five points higher on the contact scale than his career average. Uh, but he's also still pulling the ball a lot. So, uh, that's still allowing him to tap into the power. And even with the fly ball rate being down, as we always like to say, when the, the denominator of balls in play is so high, then, you know, there's still a lot of room for good outcomes there. So, you know, a lot of good things going on here. I noticed also that Corbin looked at some stat cast metrics and noticed, noticed that Semyon has been hitting the ball harder, but his barrel rates have dropped, which indicates that perhaps the launch angles aren't quite in that sweet spot zone that you'd like to see. But his expected power index, hard contact rates at or near career highs, I think there's not a lot to worry about here. And something else I've noticed about Marcus Semyon, I think in four of the the last four complete years, he's been over 700 plate appearances in all four years. So he's really looking after himself. There was stories about that. Do you remember when he, I think before he moved to Toronto, he kind of recommitted himself to getting in shape, staying in shape, working on all those things and hitting labs and stuff and really decided to, to make a mark on his own career and good for him. I expect many of his drafters were also looking for some speed. He had 25 stolen bases last year, not quite on that pace this year. What did Corbin say about the outlook on that front? That's where Corbin pumps the brakes a little bit and, you know, to sort of summarize with a, you know, with, with the pithy quote, it's kind of a speed is the skill of the young situation. And as we noted, Semyon is 32, and maybe that's the uh, the first thing that we start to see decline here. Uh, his speed score this year is 120, which is still pretty level with where he's been the last four or five years. And he's when he does run, he's stealing at a 90% success rate. So no sign of a problem there. But it really seems like in terms of aggressiveness, the stolen base opportunity percentage is how we measure that. Uh, last year, it really seems like it's an outlier. He was up around 12% last year versus a career rate that's more like 7%. So Corbin says that 20 stolen bases is probably about the ceiling for this year, but we wouldn't even place a strong bet on that. Um, our current projections for the rest of the season, which obviously at this point, you'll have a little more than half a year remaining, project nine more stolen bases for a total of 16, which is 
certainly helpful, although in this current stolen base environment, kind of kind of pedestrian. But when you take those sixteen, those nine more stolen bases, combine them with fourteen more projected home runs, another one hundred and twenty nine runs and RBIs on top of that sweet sweet Texas lineup, you end up with a projected full year stat line of twenty four home runs, sixteen stolen bases, one hundred and fourteen RBIs, and one hundred and twenty six runs. If he gets to that. 700 plate appearance level again it's just that counting stat monster so if it's not 30 dollars that's probably a, the difference between 650 and 700 plate appearances it'll be it'll be pretty close it'll be knocking on the door maybe also the difference between 16 stolen bases and 20 or 21 sure if they're worth a, a dollar for every five seems like a pretty reasonable estimate <laughs> Staying in Texas, uh, Jock Thompson covers the five American League West teams in playing time tomorrow, and he says that Texas looks poised to deal some offense because they need some pitching help both in their rotation and maybe in their bullpen as well. Which Texas hitters does Jock think are going to be on the move in this scenario? Jock points out that what the Rangers really have here is a ton of depth and versatility, so they can go a lot of different ways in terms of who they want to keep and build around and keep that elite offense going versus what chips they want to cash in for some pitching help. You have to sort of assume that the core infield of Semyon at second base, Corey Seager at shortstop, Nathaniel Lowe at first, and Josh Young at third is the core they're going to going to stick with. So you look further to see what pieces might be available, and they do have plenty more pieces. You know, they the two sort of infield slash utility types they've been using this year are Ezekiel Duran and Josh Smith, uh, Josh H. Smith, if you want to be particular about it. Um, They've been moving around with the injuries and uh, the the moving parts in that lineup. They've played second, third, short, the outfield. Duran's currently the starter in left field, but Jock says that, you know, either one of these guys could be a piece they put on the trade table. When I read that, I was surprised. I wouldn't have thought that Duran would be considered that available. He's been so valuable to Texas this year, filling in for Seager when he went on the IL for almost three weeks. Then he's been playing, as you said, uh, a regular turn in left field and really producing, Ray, uh, 179 plate appearances. He's got eight homers, 28 RBIs, three bags, 25 runs, and he's almost at 300. If you prorate the counting stats out to 650 plate appearances, which is kind of a proxy for a full year, you're looking at a 29 homer, 101 RBI season with 11 bags. Pretty hard to trade that away. Hard to trade it away for sure, but they really need pitching, right? So um, you got to pay, you got to pay to get what you need. Um, And the, the real story is that there is Josh Smith might be able to let them live without Duran because He's a better defender, especially at shortstop, if they need him there than Duran. He hasn't been quite the same offensively. Uh, 120 plate appearances. He's got three home runs, five RBIs, seven runs, a stolen base, you know, but a, a BA down around uh, the Mendoza line. But he does take a walk. He's got a 12% walk rate. He's making pretty good contact, and he can run, which you know, in some ways, makes him sort of a you know, not a you know, if you think of Duran as sort of a luxury item, as your 10th bat in a lineup, if you will. Smith is still a perfectly reasonable solution in that role. Any potential utility guys on the farm who could get playing time if one of the, or both of those guys gets traded or be trade chips themselves? The organizational depth for the Rangers is 
pretty good in this regard. There's there's a couple guys worth talking about. There's Justin Foscue, who's a 24-year-old infielder who's got an 893 OPS, power speed guy with eight home runs and stolen bases in AAA, and more walks and strikeouts through you know almost half a season at this point. So that's an interesting profile. There's another guy who's rather unheralded. I wasn't familiar with the name. Uh, David Wenzel, the 26-year-old, so maybe a little bit of a Bull Durham guy. But he's got a 914 OPS, 13 home runs, and a pretty decent walk strikeout rate also down in AAA. And then a name you will recognize, uh, Luis Angel Acuna. Yes, Ronald Acuna's little brother uh, is hitting 300 with a 370 OBP. And get this, a 26 to 1 stolen base to caught stealing ratio in uh, in his first pass at AA this year. So uh, that's a piece to keep an eye on both as somebody who, you know, all three of these guys, either as somebody who could jump onto the roster up in Texas if a Duran gets moved out or probably particularly in the case of Acuna as a potential trade ship who can, could end up on another roster and maybe in a situation where the lineup above him is not as stocked as the current Ranger lineup is. So, you know, the, the Rangers have some cards to play here, I think is Jock's point. I think that's a really good analysis. And what what you said that really stuck with me is pretty much every pro- offensive prospect they have is blocked. You know, they, they just have no weaknesses in that, uh, in that Texas lineup. So if these guys are going to get into the big leagues, if I was Justin Foscue or Luis Angel Acuna, I might be kind of saying, I wouldn't mind a trade, you know, if it gets me into the major leagues a couple of years earlier than it looks like it's going to, especially. Yeah. In hey, Oakland looks pretty good right now, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Well, let's not okay, go. Okay, well, I'm going too far. Sorry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a little much. Speaking of Kansas City, bad news for them, like they needed more of that. First baseman Vinny Pasquantino, one of the team's few bright spots, tore his labrum in his right shoulder. He's going to need surgery, and the surgery's going to end his season. Ryan Williams covered the story for playing time today. What's the upshot here with Vinny Pasquantino gone for the year? Obviously a tough blow for Royals fans, Pasquantino owners. It kind of came in two phases this week. There was sort of the first... You know, something happened. It might be bad. We'll put him on the IL. And then we did all of the playing time analysis for that. And then the sort of the second shoe dropped with the, yup, it's the labrum. It's the whole year. Uh, the news in terms of who picks up the pieces doesn't change. But obviously, the, uh, the, the how far the window is open changed, right? Um, for Nick Prado is the first guy who comes up. But he was playing pretty much every day already between first base and the outfield. So it's not much of an improvement in situation for him. He just becomes the everyday first baseman and the vacuum of Pascotino playing time really gets spread out among the outfielders. Edward Olivares has now played five games in a row uh, since the Pascotino injury uh, between left field and DH. Uh, So he looks like he's stepped up to being an everyday guy and Dyron Blanco was called up and got three starts immediately in the outfield, two in left field, one in center. Olivares probably has a, a more runway and a firmer grip on a job there. Blanco might get squeezed when Kyle Isbell comes off the IL, which is getting pretty close. Isbell's on a rehab assignment, uh, going to be, might need another week or so, but uh, I would imagine by, you know, maybe next weekend or, early the following week, we're going to see him and he'll probably come up and get back into the center field mix with waters. And then one, whichever of Isabel and waters is not playing center, 
becomes an option in one of the corner spots too. So Blanco probably trickles down to being more of a fourth, fifth outfield type if he even sticks on the roster at that point. Uh, looking further down the depth chart in Kansas City and wondering, you know, if uh, if the injury bug strikes again, who else we might see? There's uh, there's Samad Taylor who's hitting 300 in AAA and now is sort of one step closer to being needed in Kansas City, uh, whether it's for another injury or one of these guys that we're talking about not hitting. Um, and looking for organizational depth, the Royals also signed Matt Beatty, who is on at least his third team of the year now, if not more than that. Um, he's probably insurance at first base for Prado. Um, he's on a minor league deal now, so he'll go to Omaha and be on standby uh, a highway right away if needed. Some quick hits from this morning's Playing Time Today news coverage. I saw this one. It said Chicago placed third baseman Yoan Moncada, and then in parentheses, back on the 10-day injured list. And I thought, well, that's kind of snarky for a Baseball HQ news coverage that they're pointing out that he's going back on the, on the list. But of course, what they meant was he's got a sore back. And it took me a second to realize that, but uh, one way or another, Rick Green covered the story. I presume this is good news for Jake Berger. In fact, it's such good news for Jake Berger and such an obvious uh, development. Uh, I was I did a chat on the site on Monday, and somebody asked about Mankata in the context of whether he should drop him or whatever. And I went off on a on a free Jake Berger rant. And when I saw this news on you know this morning, a couple of days later, is um seeing that Mankata's back is acting up. I was imagining Mankata walking into the clubhouse yesterday and uh, uh, the manager uh, calling him into the office and saying, "Hey, Yoan, your back hurts." And Yoan's like, "What?" And they're like, Yoan, your back hurts. <laughs> you know, it's time. You've been terrible and sure, you know, I'm being snarky about it. Maybe it is the case that the back has legitimately bothered him all year. And this is why he's been uh, so terrible at the plate. But it, it had really gotten to the point where it was just ludicrous for the White Sox to keep playing Moncada over Berger when one of them is killing the ball and one of them isn't. Uh, so for now, it's a playing time bump for Berger. At Mankata's expense, we'll see whether Mankata uh, goes, you know, how long it is before Mankata goes out on a rehab stint, tries to get his swing going. Um, but Berger's been so good with a 600 slug, a 350 ISO, a $17 5x5 value already in, you know, barely 50% playing time or so this year that, you know, I, I think even with all the struggles the White Sox have had, even and, and so some of the head-scratching decisions we've seen there, they just had to do this. Speaking of repeatedly injured players, Minnesota activated outfielder Byron Buxton from the 10-day IL and optioned outfielder Trevor Larnack to AAA. Rick Green covering this story as well. What happens while we wait for Buxton's next injury? All playing time assumptions involving Byron Buxton are written in pencil, right? I don't know what the uh, what the HTML equivalent of writing in pencil is on our website, but I should really, you know, develop an icon or something for that. Um, this time, Buxton had been out since June 1st. It was bruised ribs. Uh, before that, IL stint in April and May, he had been hitting 220 with uh, 10 home runs, 23 RBIs, six stolen bases in 50 games. So the power and speed were still there, as they always are when – it's not when those things are not locked away on the IL. Larnock had picked up um, at bats for the last week or so in between the revolving door of injuries in Minnesota. Uh, he had only gone four for 22 over the last week or so. So he goes back to AAA and he's probably just, you know, on standby for the next Byron Buxton injury, I would imagine. 
And the Angels put shortstop Zach Neto on the 10-day IL. Jake Crumpler covers the Angels for playing time today. What happens in Anaheim with this fine young player on the shelf? So this is a, an oblique strain. Uh, we have not seen the grade designation on that. Um, we've talked about that in the context of the Big Hurt column, too. Um, it was characterized in the initial reports as side cramps. So could possibly be a grade one variety, which would be a fairly short IL stint, uh, but it's Andrew Velasquez who's been called up to Anaheim and will probably see the bulk of the p- playing time there at shortstop for the Angels, uh, being that he is a true shortstop. Uh, Z- uh, Gio Urshela could masquerade there from uh, you know f- for a couple of days at a time if they wanted to, but we'll probably see a lot of Velasquez for the next couple of weeks. Moving over to the pitchers. Uh, starting pitcher buyers guide analyst Stephen Nickrand this week looked at starters with unusual platoon splits in his usual thorough style. One of the names on his American League list was right-handed Cleveland prospect turned starter in the big leagues, Tanner Bybee. Always a, an interesting angle when Stephen t- picks up this one, looking at odd platoon splits and not just for the sake of them, but sort of in the sense of things that we wouldn't think would would sustain and would therefore portend a future change in performance. Uh, with Bybee, what he's seeing is that against lefties, he's really not throwing strikes. 40% of his pitches have been balls, which is a really high amount of, uh, you know, in any, in any split or any, in, in any context. And as a result, that more than supports the 11% walk rate he's allowing the lefties, which, by the way, is pretty bad, um, and, and leads to him having an overall base performance value of 57 against lefties, which is just a nice shorthand way of saying he's a below-average pitcher against left-handed bats. Um, on the flip side, he's been shredding right-handed hitters to the tune of a 24% strikeout rate to a 2% walk rate, you don't need a calculator to figure out that that's a 22% K minus BB rate. Um, he's also getting a decent ground ball rate and 145 base performance value against righties. So 145 against righties, 57 against lefties shows you how you uh, attack him if you're making a lineup. The, the fly in the ointment here is his ball percentage. We talked about 40% versus lefties. It's still only 37% against righties. So maybe the... Uh, Trouble finding home plate is not actually confined to just left-handed batters. It's uh, that that's an overall bugaboo he's going to have to solve. Yeah, that's what I thought too, and I read that in Stevens' analysis. Forty percent of pitches against left-handers. Wow, that's quite a number. And then you find out it's thirty-seven percent against right-handers. So it's not like it doesn't even sound like a platoon split when you put it that way. It sounds like natural variation. Tell me this. Are you getting to the position where you, if you had Tanner Bybee looking at a strongly left-handed lineup, you might sit him? Yeah, I think I probably am. I was playing that game a little bit earlier in this season, trying to think. I think it was with Clark Schmidt because he was somebody else who was showing some fairly dramatic platoon splits, although those have corrected a little bit of late. Um, but the thing you find in this day and age is with teams carrying, you know, 13 hitters, 14 pitchers, you know, these kind of things. It's not like the Earl Weaver days when you got six bats on the bench and you can run a key and Lowenstein your way to a lineup that's got six lefties and six righties on any given day when you need them. Like, th- there are teams out there that 
only have two left-handed hitters. And if they run into Tanner Bybee, well, they've still only got two left-handed hitters. So it's worth checking the lineups if you have, you know, if you're playing DFS or if you have daily moves. But there are very few teams out there that can really stack up left-handers to take advantage of something like this. I didn't, I don't remember seeing a strikeout platoon split for the left-handers. And I'm wondering if he's also having trouble just getting the ball over the plate enough to get swings and misses. I think that would be interesting to look into as well. Steven also looked at a couple of Houston pitchers, and one of them was right-handed starter Christian Javier. Similar story here without the uh, without the walk rate issues. Uh, against righties, Javier is almost unhittable with a 513 OPS, 33% strikeout rate versus a 5% walk rate. Again, easy math. That's 28% on the K-minus BB, K-minus BB rate. His BPV is 167. I mean, that's you know almost closer level for a starting pitcher against righties, which of course are you know the bulk of the batters in the game, as we were just talking about. Uh, but if you can get a lefty up there against him, he turns into Clark Kent pretty quickly. BPV drops, you know, more than 100 points to just 61. The K minus BB goes from 28 to 9%. Um, and it's really, you know, this isn't a control problem. This is more of a Javier not having the uh, put away swing and miss pitch against the lefties than he does against the righties. Javier's a more established pitcher than Bybee is, but are we also starting to think about Javier versus left handed heavy hitting lineups? Maybe not to the same degree. It's worth looking at the lineup every day, but you know, better team context here. Javier more established, as he notes. Uh, you know, nice offense, nice bullpen around him. Uh, I'd, I'd probably be, and you and you probably paid more for Javier, so I'd probably be giving him a little more leeway. White Sox closer Liam Hendricks, who had been at the center of the feel-good story of the year, is now at the center of one of the saddest stories of the year. He made it all the way back from cancer treatment, pitched very well, and then went back to the IL with the dreaded elbow soreness. Uh, Doug Dennis mentioned the White Sox pen in his latest relief pitcher buyer's guide, which came out a day or two before the Hendrick news broke. But still, what can we learn about the White Sox pen from Doug's study of high-leverage relief pitchers? Doug's great, and I, I always enjoy this one because the, there's a dynamic there you sort of see where Doug has, you know, in addition to having great analysis here, everyone's always interested in what he has to say about these murky bullpen situations. So you'll see this dynamic like where in the he'll write his column for the week, and in the comments they'll be like, hey, Doug, can you go talk about this other pen? And Doug is responsive. It was like, yeah, I'll get to that one next week or whatever. But And, and then Doug will take that bullpen like this Chicago one's a great example – put it through the car wash of, you know, metrics and leverage index and who's pitching well and who's not. And, you know, sometimes Doug just comes up with the shrug emoji. <laughs> I think this is, this is kind of one of those cases. Uh, you know, there are, there are a lot of guys in the mix without Hendricks at the top of this bullpen. And it's not clear where you would expect them to turn. It's not clear where they should turn. Joe Kelly probably has the best skills. He's got a 30% strikeout rate, not walking anybody. He's got a 265 expected ERA. But then Ronaldo Lopez is in the mix. Kendall Graveman's in the mix. And if you look at what they've done in the last week or so, when Hendricks wasn't available, Graveman got the ball in a doubleheader before Hendricks actually went out. He got a save. He got a save because I think Hendricks pitched in the other game of the doubleheader. But after that, Kelly got a save off the next night and gave up five runs. Only two of them were earned, but still he blew the save, took the loss. Next time, they went back to Graveman, who 
got rocked as well, giving up three runs to earn to blow a, lot, blow a save there. And then the next night, they went back to Graben in a non-save situation, and this time he threw a clean, clean inning. And since the other two had blown their last two save ops, you look, you and you think you want to look at what Ronaldo Lopez is going to do as curtain number three. Last night, he came into a game in the sixth. So, A, he's not at the top of the pecking order. And B, he also got rocked, gave up a couple of runs to blow a save opportunity. So, you know, there's it might just be that there's no safe harbor in this bullpen right now. No save harbor as well, I guess you could say. Let's move over to the National League. We'll start again with the hitters. Uh, in Colorado, they've tried to shore up a pretty weak catcher position by going into the time machine a little bit. Dan Marcus reporting playing time tomorrow coverage of the National League West that the Rockies have signed one-time prospect Jorge Alfaro. Rockies doing Rocky things. The uh, Alfaro has been released by a few teams this year and the Rockies immediately picked him up this time when he became available. But just to put it, put the typical Rocky spin on things, they've decided that, yeah, we put picked him up and we're going to call him up to Colorado, but I don't think he's going to catch. Let's try him as the DH. Um, okay. So if you look at Alfaro's uh, plate skills, uh, you know, for his career, there's consistent, free swinging and lack of contact, 4% walk rate, 63% contact rate. Those numbers are terrible. Um, of course, he's also a career negative in terms of defensive run saved at catcher. So he's not a strong defensive catcher, although he has a cannon of an arm. So maybe that's where the DH idea comes from. Um, he had been in the Red Sox system this year where he had racked up an 886 OPS in AAA and to his credit, had cut the strikeouts down a little bit. Um, but he had an opt-out in his contract. The Red Sox weren't ready to call him up, so they let him walk away. Um, Elias, Elias Diaz is, of course, the primary catcher in Colorado, and it's been pretty good. Um, solid but unspectacular, I guess. Um, league average power, hitting the ball hard, some decent contact numbers. He's actually been batting cleanup in that watered-down lineup with Cron and Blackman and a couple other guys out lately. Um, He's 33. He could be the primary catcher for another couple of years. They do have a prospect by the name of Drew Romo in the pipeline, uh, who's, I think, I think just made it to double A. So he might be the guy in a couple of years. Alfaro's 30, though. So he's not probably a long term fix here. Uh, they sent Brian Servin, who's, of course, catcher by trade, back to triple A when they called up Alfaro, but they still have Diaz and Austin wins on the roster, which is where the DH idea from our Alan Davison comes from is that they've still got, um, you know, they're still carrying two catchers. So it's a situation where theoretically Alfaro is freed up to DH if they want to do that. And they don't necessarily have to worry about losing, losing the DH if he had to go behind the plate or anything like that. Staying with catchers, Dan also looked at the situation in San Francisco where Joey Bart might be at risk of being supplanted atop the catcher depth chart. I don't think he's at risk. I think it's happened. Uh, Bart was out for the last few weeks, um, and then while he was on the IL, Patrick Bailey had been called up to fill in for him. Uh, we thought that was a move that would only be a stopgap until Bart got back, but Bailey was impressive at the plate. Uh, 143 on the hard contact index, a 165 power index, that's 65% power above league average, uh, 75 at-bats of a 928 OPS. So he was raking, and the Giants basically decided they couldn't send him back down. So uh, Patrick Bailey and uh, Blake Sable end up being the uh, catchers of the moment, and Bart goes back to AAA. 
And from what manager Gabe Kapler said, it doesn't sound like Bart is going to be welcomed back anytime soon. It doesn't sound like this is a quick get your head cleared up uh, situation with him getting sent down. And, you know, to be clear, it's not just Bart getting Wally pipped. He's also earned this promotion, uh, demotion, I should say. um, Defensively, he had made some improvements, um, especially in terms of framing and overall um, defensive work by defensive runs saved. Um, He was making more contact at the plate, too, but not hard contact at all. Um, The quality of it was just dreadful. So, yeah, this raises the question whether he is a swing retooling or approach change away from becoming interesting again, or if it's something less fixable than that, or if the fix or the fresh start has to come in another organization. Boy, I remember when Joey Bart was a hot hot commodity in fantasy leagues that had sort of those deep reserves or farm systems, how the mighty have fallen. Uh, You mentioned Charlie Blackman earlier, Ray, they put him uh, on the 10-day IL and sent down second baseman Alan Trejo, and they recalled a second baseman, Coco Montez, and we mentioned Brian Servan earlier, Alan Davison covering the story for playing time today. What are the dominoes falling here? Blackman gets uh, the IL stint with a broken hand, projected in about four to six weeks, which really looks like that probably lines up with the All-Star break. Um, and he was having a pretty solid bounce-back season at 37 years old, hitting 265 with five home runs. Of course, that's nowhere near what he was back in the last decade. In 2019, he was 314 with 32 home runs, so it's not that Charlie Blackman anymore. Um, as for the call-ups, Montez made his major league debut this week. He had two. For, he went two for three with a homer and a couple RBIs in his first game, um, and he earned the promo with a 321 batting average, 12 home runs, and four stolen bases in AAA. Uh, Trejo had been handling second base since Brendan Rodgers went down, but uh, he was at 240 with no home runs in 112 at bats in Colorado. So he steps aside for the moment. Um, and, you know, Servin was a couple of days of catching depth until Alfaro came along. But looking ahead, we've cut uh, Blackman's playing time by 20% to reflect basically the month lost. Trejo's by 50 because we're not sure he's going to be back anytime soon. So Montez picks up 50% of the playing time, mostly at second base. And the other playing time winner here is Nolan Jones, who got called up a couple of weeks ago and has been raking. So between first base and the outfield, it seems like there's uh, plenty of opportunity for him to see if he can sustain his uh, 1.087 OPS that he's racked up in about uh, three weeks of play. And finally, let's move over to the National League pitchers. Ryan Bloomfield's speculator column this week has a review of prospects who fit into one of the 10 steps to stardom concept at BaseballHQ.com. And before we start in on any particular players, I seem to recall this being called the A-Rod 10 steps to stardom. What is it and how did it start? Yeah, it's kind of, it is an old concept that dates back to uh, A-Rod's debut in Seattle in, God, that was the late 90s, wasn't it? So but it, it's meant to capture the um, non-linear erratic paths that prospects sometimes take to delivering on their former prospect pedigree. So it's a, the idea is a, uh, that it's such a yo-yo of prospect gets, gets called up. Everyone gets excited. Prospect struggles. Everyone gets disappointed. Prospect gets sent down. Prospect gets hot again. Everyone gets excited again and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, before the prospect finally 
you know, in the, uh, you know, it emerges as a butterfly, or hopefully at the at the end of the process, right? Um, but that's uh, it's been kicking around for a long time in in HQ uh, parlance, and Ryan does a really nice job in this piece of basically taking that ten step path and trying to drop a couple of names of current players who might be at each distinct step on the path right now. Step four in this process is prospect gets demoted. You mentioned more than once, actually. Uh, Ryan identified a couple of National League right-handers, uh, Gavin Stone of the Dodgers, Brandon Fott of Arizona. Let's start with Stone. These guys were relevant prospects in our rankings, ranked 50th and 51st on our top 100 prospects entering the season. Uh, combined, though, eight starts in the majors this year and 38 runs allowed, which I don't need to tell you is not good. So they're both back in the minors now, sort of on the merits. Uh, you know, Stone had, you know, 10 innings in the majors of a 1440 ERA and a, a 3.00 whip, which, yeah, that's pretty bad. Walked more hitters than he struck out, 40% hard contact, a negative 72 base performance value, which might be the worst number I've ever seen. Of course, it's only 10 innings, so let's not be too harsh about it. Um, he's been back in the minors, and it's been, I mean, it's been better because it would have to be, but not to the point that he looks ready. He's got a 5.08 ERA in, and a one, still a 1.51 whip in AAA this year, and even though it's the PCL, those are not the kind of numbers that get you a ticket back to LA. Um, you know, but the point of the prospects, the 10 steps here is that it's not time to give up on him yet though, because let's not forget that just a year ago, he shot through three levels of the minors with a sub two ERA at every stop and a sub one whip in triple a. So he's not showing it right now, but we've, you know, <laughs> he can pitch or at least he's shown us in the past he can pitch. So he's in the uh, sort of downside of the 10 steps here where he gets knocked around and everybody forgets about him. But, uh, you know, watch, rinse, repeat. And at some point he may come out uh, showing that 2022 form again. Well, Stone is uh, taking part in the Los Angeles rotation, of course, and Dan Marcus covered that situation in playing time tomorrow. We've talked about this before. Ray. <coughs> what was Dan's take on how Stone fits into what the musical chairs going on at the end of that rotation? Yeah, Dan points out that it, it, it's kind of a pre precarious time for Dodgers starting pitching. Uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we thought Julio Urias was about to come back from his IL stint for a hamstring strain, but then had a setback with the hamstring that seems like it was pretty significant because he's now weeks away again. And of course, Noah Syndergaard um, got knocked around and is now on the IL and working on things, trying to retool things after i think it was a blister if i remember correctly but he shut down and trying to basically find a way to get people out because he wasn't doing that so there was an opportunity for stone here and he you know there still could still be more opportunities um but it'll be stone and michael grove who probably have to compete for those opportunity opportunities when another pitcher is needed grove hasn't been much better um in the majors he's got an 810 era in 30 innings himself um, the skills were a little better than stones, but again, faint praise. Um, so it probably remains to be seen when a need arises, which one of them Grover stone is pitching better at the time. Dan also mentioned another possibility. A guy, when I wrote this was currently in double a. 
and now he's not. It's uh, and I think you're talking about Emmett Sheehan, who has been called up from Double A and is going to start against the Giants on Saturday. Um, another Dodger developmental success story. Uh, 2021 sixth round pick had been jumping up to minor league ladder quickly. Had barely made it to Triple A. I'm not even sure he pitched there. Um, but he'd been killing it in Double A with a 42% strikeout rate and. 53 innings. That's 88 Ks and 53 innings. Tolerable walk rate of 11%, a 186 ERA, and a sub one whip. So they're going to try him. He's a big guy. He throws hard, 95, 97. Um, They're going to try him ahead of Stone and Garrett. And if he sticks, then he'll probably get some more opportunities. So do you foresee Stone getting back to the Dodgers? Not until he starts showing some better results in AAA, and I think the call-up of Sheehan kind of reflects that the Dodgers aren't just going to call him up because he was sort of the next in line. This is a results-oriented business, and Sheehan was putting up results in AA. Stone is not putting up results in AAA. Ergo, it's Sheehan who gets called up to LA. Um, so just to reset on the Dodgers rotation, Kershaw, Bobby Miller, Tony Gonsolin are all entrenched. Urias will be back, we think, in a couple of weeks, which if those four guys are all healthy at the same time, would leave three pitchers, Sheehan, Stone, and Grove, all vying to be the number five man. And for now, it's going to be Sheehan. He'll probably get a couple of starts to see if he can do better than Stone and Grove did in their cups of coffee in LA. And let's face it, he could he probably couldn't do worse. So that doesn't mean that they're giving up on any of these guys. But like I said, the jo- the, the starts are going to go to whoever's pitching the best. And we're going to see what Sheehan has to offer because the other two guys have shown that uh, they can't get guys out right now. And moving to Arizona, what about Brendan Fott? Same sort of thing, you know, was a darling of March, right? Who was climbing up draft boards by the day, by the week during spring training. And then, Five starts, uh, an ERA over eight, a 165 whip, a K-minus BB of just 9% in 23 innings, and back to AAA. Um, again, things are better there, but not great. A 418 ERA in the minors, the K-minus BB is up to 18, which is better than nine, but not necessarily knocking on a door of, you know, saying, hey, call me back up, right? Well, but, yeah. So I would think we're going to have to see some, you know, actual dominant results from him in AAA before he punches a ticket back to Arizona. Keeping in mind that the Diamondbacks are leading the division, they obviously have their eyes on the playoffs prize, so they don't have time to dilly-dally waiting for Fott to figure things out. No, they don't. Uh, you know, the top of the rotation is great with Zach Gallon and Merrill Kelly as their one too, but the justification or the – the optimistic take on fat back in April was that he can't be worse than Zach Davies and Ryan Nelson. And we got half of that, right? Zach Davies and Ryan Nelson have been bad. Both of their ERAs are over five and their whips over 1.5. Tommy Henry is currently holding the fifth spot down and he's sort of of the same class. Uh, So somebody needs to step up there. And I would think once fat demonstrates that he's clearly better than Davies, Nelson, or Henry, he would get the call back, but that's not a bar he has cleared yet. And we talked earlier about a couple of American leaguers in Stephen Nickran's starting pitcher's buyer's guide about big platoon splits. He also named some national leaguers, as he always does, and one of them I noticed was Miami right-hander Sandy Alcantara. 
Yeah, the reigning Cy Young Award winner has uh, frustrated his fantasy manager so far this year, uh, who did not pay for a 5.07 ERA, and yet that's what he has delivered so far in 76 innings. You could blame a mostly a 57% strand rate for those struggles from Alcantara, uh, but taking a look at those platoon splits, like we were talking about earlier, Alcantara hasn't been good against lefties. Uh, a 61 base performance value versus lefties, and here's that ball percentage again, 36% ball percentage, which just suggests that lefties are laying off of his offerings and you know he doesn't have a put away pitch that's fooling them into swinging and anything out of the strike zone they're taking everything out of the strike zone so he's walking lefties at a you know an 11 percent rate which um is in this case very different than what he does against righties where he pounds the strike zone um only a five percent walk rate there against righties so uh, again like we were talking about with some of those guys earlier from the al side of this article a big a big uh gap in base performance value between lefties and righties. All right, Ray, thanks very much for helping us out again this week, and we'll talk to you again in a week's time. Awesome. Thank you, PD. Ray Murphy is the co-general manager, projections expert, writer, and analyst at BaseballHQ.com. Coming up, we have part two of our feature expert interview with Rob DiPietro, but let me first highlight some more great content from the Baseball HQ site right now. In this week's Big Hurt column, analyst Matthew Cederholm goes into that HQ mash tent to triage Marcelo Zuna, Aaron Judge, Jazz Chisholm, and other players on the injury shelf. And in this week's Speculator column, Ray and I discussed a moment ago, analyst Ryan Bloomfield has a look at the A-Rod 10 Steps to Stardom concept and then looks at this year's crop of prospects to find one who fits into each of the 10 steps. The Big Hurt and The Speculator, two more great resources online every week at BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Rob DiPietro from the Dead Pull Hitter Patreon and podcast and the Launch Angle podcast. Rob, welcome back to part two. Thank you, Patrick. On Twitter, you posted a note about four players who are on heaters the last couple of weeks. Let's start with uh, who were the four players? Uh, there were Shohei Otani, Corbin Carroll, Gunnar Henderson, and Jack Sawinski. Um, they weren't necessarily, I, I wasn't filtering for heaters per se. They just happened to land in that. But um, every day I do a hot corner uh, box score no notes and news for my Patreon. And so I go through some of the... I go through home runs, stolen bases, and barrels from the day, and I just kind of, kind of highlight people. And uh, so when I put them into my Fangraphs leaderboard, I just noticed how much they've been um, damage they've been doing in the last two weeks. We have a lot of research that suggests hot and cold streaks are real; <laughs> they do occur. But that a hot streak lasts so many days doesn't predict a hot streak for the following so many days, nor does it predict a cold streak. They just happen and it's pretty much a random walk. So when we spot or hear about a player who's on a heater like this, what do you think is the best way to respond? I think it depends on the type of player. Like with, with three of these gentlemen here, we've got two, two of the biggest prospects in baseball that we've seen in the last couple of years. We've got Otani, there's there's no really actionable stuff from that, right? He's going to be great, and then he's going to have stretches where he's even greater than we expect him to be, <laughs> and basically what has happened to him in the last couple of weeks. Um, for Corbin Carroll and 
and Gunnar Henderson, this is can kind of be kind of like some confirmation bias uh, of of how you thought these players would would fare this year. And um, Jack Sawinski, it's a little different. It's like you know, it's the kind of guy who um, he's available in a lot of twelve team leagues and fifteen team leagues. He he won't be, but you know, so he's still actionable in some leagues where where I play in. So um, he's someone I think I give a little more attention to. And I don't know how you handle it so much is um, my biggest thing is, uh, you know, so with, with Jack, he, he, he doesn't really play versus lefties. Um, so it, it's, you know what you're getting from him, but from someone else who, who's given opportunity, I think hot streaks lead to playing time a lot. And that's like what I try to key in on with the lesser known players is, not, not lesser known, but the lesser targeted players in fab leagues or the lesser discussed players on Twitter is, you know, um, yeah, it's a two week sample and you're fine. He had a couple of barrels that week or in, in one game, but what does that mean? But it might mean that the team's like, okay, like uh, let's, let's give you some more time. It seems like Corbin Carroll's heater might've started a few days before the 14 days. I think it was a four or five days before he went three for four at Philadelphia. And that really seemed to get the ball rolling. He certainly wasn't doing anybody any harm before the heater started. He had eight home runs and 14 bags and was hitting 277. So as a fantasy player and a fantasy expert, how do you think we should respond when you get a very good player like Carroll and all of a sudden he soars up into superstar territory? I think for, for one, we should, uh, number one, embrace it and cherish it. Like just really enjoy what this young man is doing because that often gets missed. Uh, I actually had a tweet about this a month ago before he got hot, like this hot, before he was scorching, scorching, when he was probably at nine home runs and 10 steals. And I thought that there wasn't enough talk about him in general. And not, and not just for fantasy baseball, but in baseball in general, like MLB Network and just uh, he wasn't getting that focus that J-Rod had last year, at least from what I thought. Um, and you know, for, uh, he's just been, he's just been really, I, I mean, we had a second chance draft, uh, for the NFBC, they held gladiator drafts, which is for anyone who's not familiar with that and wants to try a really good format next year. It's just a gladiator draft. It's, it's like best ball where you, there's no fab and there's no, um, lineup setting, but it's, it's, it's not optimal lineup. It's basically only lineup. You draft 14 batters and, and nine pitchers and that's it. You get all the roto categories that you can get from that. And, um, so we did a draft and I had the number fourth pick and this was through my pull hitter Patreon. We had a private draft for anyone that wanted to participate. So it was everyone who was a part of the pull hitter patreon and um i had the fourth pick and somehow lana lacuna lasted to me and i was beside myself but anyway in the second round corbin carroll was there and i jumped all over it and i still think that we're kind of already i think we're miscalculating it already so i hope next season that everyone will recalibrate it because I think he's going to be a top five pick next year, top eight max. And I think um, all the questions about the torn labrum and will he develop power? He's erased every single bit of that. The max exit velocity is amazing. Opposite field power is there. He hustles. They got an exciting young new team, which, uh, you know, 
can't really build that into any models, but I, I, I like, I like that. I think it's a big part of it. So I think that, um, anyone who's kind of underestimating him and think that they're going to get him at some value next year is already thinking about that. I think they're, I think they're in for a rude awakening. It's kind of a different story for Gunnar Henderson. His fantasy managers, including me, were despairing. He had a five <laughs> home runs, I think, one stolen base. He was batting 201, although uh, 335 on base percentage. That was through his first 41 games before this heater started. So, Rob, it feels like Henderson has taken off the rust and found some confidence, all those usual narrative explanations we invent for ourselves, but how likely do you think it is that Henderson has in fact turned some kind of a corner and this is just him getting back to his actual talent level? Yeah, I think, I think the talent level itself didn't really disappear so much as he just didn't come together at the same time. You know, um, I think from what I saw early in the season and I don't, um, here's, here's another guy in the second chance draft. I, I took him, I only did two of those second chance drafts. I took him on both, both teams. Um, and his ADP fell pretty dramatically from early in the season. I'm going to pull it up real quick, but yeah, he, he ended up being on average, uh, 214 after he was in the top hundred, top 120 this season, um, in the preseason. And, so I really, I wasn't really paying attention to him because I only have him on one league. But um, as I was taking my notes, and I do a lineup pod for my my Patreon too, so I'm constantly looking at advising people like who might be sitting or starting in a series for the NFC scoring period. And Gunnar Henderson was always one that I had to pay attention to because um, you know he'll sit. He was sitting versus some lefties, um, and then he was playing versus some lefties. So. It, Obviously, it's always hard to gauge that, but I do my best in trying to find some kind of patterns. Um, and then I would also, though, while while I do that analysis, um, I'll always go over to the splits and and the OPS, and I'll kind of see, okay, like what is he doing versus lefties that he's getting sat all the time? And it was always bad. It was always super super bad. Um, so like, okay, this is why he sits versus lefties, even though he's, um, you know a really talented number one prospect, this is it. You know, this is what they're, they're choosing to do with him. And then some, some, sometime in the middle of May, I noticed like uh, he had some really good games for us lefties. And I always use rolling average graphs on fan graphs. Um, it's one of my favorite tools. Um, I learned that from Mr. Uh, Toby, Batflip Crazy. He was always into the rolling average graphs and telling people how it works and why you can see trends. I know a lot of people who are into, you know, like stocks and stuff like that can explain why it might help you. Um, like with this asset, right. With this fantasy baseball player that you're going to put on your team for stats. And I always, I have like a couple of metrics that I really go to. Um, but when I look at the rolling average graph, it's mostly zone swing, O swing, swing and strike. Um, I like looking at pole percentage, like looking at ground ball percentage, um, and then, you know, like K to walk really. Um, and I just noticed that like so many things were trending upward, you know, like he started to swing a lot more in the zone. He started to swing a little bit more out of the zone too, but I, he, he wasn't aggressive to not enough to me earlier in the season. I think that's like the Juan Soto thing that we're seeing now. He's starting to swing more <laughs> when you have such a good hit tool, when you have your contact skills are good, when the contact, um, you know, output is fantastic stat cast wise. 
you know, you just got to put your bat on the ball, like swing a little more. And so I saw all that stuff kind of trending in the right way. I saw swing and strike trending down. I saw the ground ball take a huge, huge dive down. And, um, I said, okay, well, there's something to pay attention to. And every week, every as every podcast I did for the lineup to, I kept looking more and more into him. And by the time those second chance draft came around, I saw a completely different player. And um, this was before this like current heater too. This is just, I think this is like the peak of it, but he started to really, really tick up week by week. He was chipping away, um, getting more PT too, uh, getting up in the batting order as well. And given that he's the number one prospect in baseball, and I trust so many people's judgment on him, like, and I've spoken to them about Gunner the whole season, and it's like, no, he's, he's still got it. It's still there. It's just, it'll manifest itself, and I think it's doing that now. Moved up to number one in the batting order when Mullins went down, and it seems to have fallen right into that role pretty comfortably. Uh, Jack Sawinski is another guy you mentioned. His plate discipline has improved a lot in this last 14-day period. Uh, 27% strikeout for the period, 33% for, from the start of the season till then. Uh, how confident can we be that lower swing Jack Sawinski is the real deal? <laughs> yeah, Jack, Jack he's, he's one of my most rostered own, uh, players as well. And constant target in draft champion season just i loved his skill set he came high out in my sgp when i when i bumped up his playing time i just uh i like to do that not because i change it and leave it but i just like would like to see almost like the steamer 600 where you kind of see their output of the season i i kind of like to play with the numbers like that too and he was always a guy that popped for me um and you know i think I think what you're seeing from him is I think that teams are pitching him a little differently. And I think that he's starting to react to that. Like he do really good breaking ball hitter. And so I saw like a lot of teams just kind of changing their approach to him. And now I think what, what we're seeing a little bit is, is like him understanding that they're changing their approach to him and he's reacting to that by waiting for the pitch that he wants. So, um, yeah, again, it's just always such a small sample, so we can't really say, oh, this is the new thing. But he never really had, like, um, a, a terrible O-swing. You know, it, it, even last year, it was always in a, like, rolling average, always around 30%. Um, and I also think, too, that there's a lot of emphasis placed on O-swing, that is not necessary. I think it's actually overhyped and overused, especially in small contexts. Like I hear O-Swing mentioned a lot on its own and I don't understand why because yeah, I get it. It could lead to more Ks, right? Sure, obviously. But when a guy um, swings a lot in the zone as well and they have amazing bat to ball, like um, amazing, you know, exit velocities, you want that, you know, you want them. So I... Um, I read a blurb uh, blog on Driveline a couple of years ago about swing decisions, you know, and they were talking about how like the impact of your decision in the zone is bigger than what your decision out of the zone is because in the zone is when you're going to probably make that contact and your best contact, right? So I kind of been doing that in the last couple of years. I combine it. I do like a Z minus O metric um, and I combine it with, you know, 
hard hit balls and barrels and exit velocity on fly balls and line drive. And I kind of get a better picture of, of a batter versus than just looking at O swing. And I think that's somewhere that a lot of people go not, you know, completely wrong, but because O swing does tell a little bit of a picture, but it doesn't tell the whole picture at all. It takes a bit of work, but I like getting the uh, O swing, the O contact velocity because some guys are reaching and they're just nubbing the ball, but some guys have that skill of, somehow getting the barrel on it. Old Vladimir Guerrero Sr., for example, you know, hitting them off his, off his shoe tops and, and two and a half feet outside and somehow, you know, getting a, getting decent wood on it. And there are hitters like that. There are guys who can reach and still make decent contact. And I think you're right that just swinging outside the zone shouldn't be a disqualifier, but swinging outside the zone and making weak contact, especially pop-ups and weak ground balls. I think that's where you got to start looking and seeing, I'm going to wait on this guy till he stops doing that because it's, that should be a disqualifier, especially if he's doing it a lot. Yeah. And I think a lot of that has to do with, um, how much of an athlete that you are too, right. And how your body frame is. Cause now you look at a guy like Ellie De La Cruz and it's this backdoor slider and it's just like at his ankles. Even the same thing with O'Neill Cruz, you know, Aaron Judge, he, he does it with balls like a little bit up and away. And it's like, how, how did you drill those pitches? It's the way their bodies is and they were just their, their fast twitch fibers are able to get to these balls that are just, uh, yeah, like maybe even, even outside the black and they're just hitting it at exit velocity that you don't think it's possible. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Rob DiPietro from the Pull Hitter Patreon and podcast and the Launch Angle podcast. And we've been talking here and there about your Patreon site called, not surprisingly, the Pull Hitter. <laughs> what gave you the inspiration to go that route for content delivery as, as opposed to joining a website? Uh, well, I have a website. I started it when I started my podcast and... Um, as I was digging into how to like monetize my podcast and some content, I, you know, I, I had my eye on Patreon because I know some fellow analysts have one, you know, have them, Mike Curland and, and, um, Bubba, Michael Timion and Jordi Montanez, they have the gaining the edge. Uh, Zach Waxman has his Patreon, um, the reliever recon guys have their Patreon. They just, as I dug into it, it just seemed like a more streamlined process for me. You know, you set up a post and everyone gets an email on it. You, you know, I could put my audio right in there. I don't don't have to do any of the other work. And I feel like if I wasn't so involved with like high stakes leagues and, and really trying to maximize that, I probably would handle all I had to handle on a, on a website on its own. Um, but I felt like this way, I could still do what I have to do and, and, and getting my best outcomes playing the game and also, you know, being able to start up a little, uh, a little business. Well, you call it a business, but I've heard you talk about how it's not so much entirely a business as much as trying to build a, an NFBC based community. What are your aspirations in that direction? I never really thought that the route would come to here. When I started my podcast, I had just got injured at work um, and I was going crazy. And my wife said, hey, start a podcast. So I started it up and it was my first year in the NFBC. COVID had hit. Um, well, second year, I did a second chance league in 2019. But so 2020 is my first year. I start my podcast. I'm talking about my home keeper league, talking about 
you know, I played in the main event that year. So I'm talking about that stuff, but I didn't really know the level I know now. And then I won the draft champions overall and it kind of um, just like kind of leveraged that opportunity to get more into the community. I realized, you know, how awesome it was and went to live events, met people and said, wow, this is, this is so cool. Um, and while the forums are great, um, you know, it's, it, it is old and clunky for this new age that we're living in. <laughs> and a lot of the, uh, you know, the um, Patreon that I mentioned, they have a Discord community. And I felt like, you know, this would be a great, great opportunity to just grab everyone who, um, and, and and it's just not, and it's not all just NFBC players, you know. Um, there's, there's there's several people in there who, who like dabble in it and who, who play like one small main event qualifier, but um, they're like, they just want to get involved with some good fantasy baseball talk. And so, yeah, develop this little community of people who just love to talk um, all things NFBC, but I have a dynasty thread in there. Um, we have uh, two channels called the Screen Pillow, Patrick, which is where everyone who wants to go complain about any bad um, match, you know, bad pitching matchup or a, a called, uh, you know, ball that was a third strike that should have got out of the inning, but now the pitcher got blown up and all this stuff. I give I give guys a, a, a channel to vent, which is actually a most popular channel now, to be honest. It has overcome the general chat. And <laughs> um, it's just it's just fun because we all have similar interests. We're all into this similar game. We're all at the same moments of the week all converging on lineups and then fab and then you know who to start and then it's just it's just really fun so i'm pretty i'm pretty happy about it and like for everyone who supported it and has gotten involved with it, it it's just been awesome the feedback that i've gotten um and just the feeling i feel like of, of, of everyone just getting together and and talking about similar things it's it, it's good and if somebody wants to go and check it out, how can they go about doing that? Oh, so you can head over to uh, patreon.com. And then if you just go into the search box for creators, you could put in pull hitter, P-U-L-L-H-I-T-T-E-R. Um, and then it'll go right to my page and it'll show you the several different options you can get involved with. Um, I have three tiers right now. Um, but you can even sign up for a free trial, which would, that trial would bring you for a week and that would to the entry tier of five bucks, which comes with basically I do about five pods a week um, with that's like a daily pod. It's um, my I call it my hot corner box score notes and news. And I go through the box scores. I do the legally like the daily leaders and categories. Um, and then I go through each box score and I find stuff that interests me. And mostly I am targeting again, actionable players, right? I'm not, everyone's covering Shohei Otani, everyone's covering, um, you know, Corbin Cowell. And I'd like to dive into the nitty gritty stuff, maybe something that, that hasn't been touched on those players. But mostly it's this 30% rostered pitcher that had, you know, 18 swings and misses. And I want to know why, right? So I dive into those things. I think that's where we can make our, you know, our biggest push into making a better move in that week. And um, so, yeah, I got three different tiers. The top tier covers 
everything I offer, including a fab pod and a fab article I do on Sundays. Um, and then, it, but if you also go to my Twitter uh, at Deadpool at Deadpool hitter, you can catch the pin tweet up top, which will take you right to the Patreon link itself. And you can come check it out. Well, it's very interesting. And I think it's the wave of the future, frankly, for content creators, because it uh, really eliminates all the middlemen between you and the, and the listeners or readers. And, uh, well, Joe Sheehan started this out 10 years or so ago when he, uh, launched his email newsletter, kind of a voice in the wilderness, if you will, where he just said, I'm going to go straight to the consumer and never mind all the websites and, uh, corporate, uh, companies and stuff in between and he made it work and good for him and good for you for doing the same. Uh, I always like to wrap up these discussions, uh, by looking at some boons and banes, Rob, in the last few weeks, we've been really focusing on the coming weekends fab runs because they have been so interesting this year. So I'd like to continue that. And I know you talk about fab a lot on your Patreon and let's start with your boons. These are players who you think are going to be good value this weekend. Start with a batter who could be a boon. This one might be a little, a little under the radar. Best card. David VR of the San Francisco Giants was just called back up. Uh, JD Davis is nursing an injury. Casey Schmidt has been meh lately, and that's just overall his skill set is just fitted for, probably just for playing short as a defensive kind of player. And David VR is the kind of guy who. Um, Comps pretty close to players like Eugenio Suarez um, and can give you tremendous amount of power. He went down to AAA and he did pretty much everything that he did um, at the major league level, but even better. And I think that I think they need his bat in the lineup and I think they need that power or uh, power outsource. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, Mitch Hanniger, I know he's going to be replaced by another player but i just think there's more opportunity right now for vr to regain that you know that 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 shine that he had at the beginning of the season where he was kind of like a sneaky under the radar kind of player and i think you'll be able to get him for real cheap too so that's why i think um the cost versus what you can possibly get in return um and it's probably not for every size league patrick but i think for like a 15 team league or especially like an especially an an only league, I think he can be a really, really good pickup for you. And of course, if you didn't hear the news, Mitch Hanniger, I think he's done for the year, Rob, isn't he? I believe so. Yeah. So there's playing time opportunity there for David VR. How about a pitcher who could be a boon this weekend? It's just funny because I, I normally do like a Wednesday watch list kind of thing where I kind of try to look at players widely available in the main events and, and try to, you know, see where we can make a biggest push for skills wise. And I think that one player that even though he's had some good starts, still widely available in 12 team leagues, but um, Daniel Lynch for the Kansas city Royals. I think that uh, a lot of people have been scarred by, um, you know, what he's done in the last couple of years, but I still remind like still number one pick that, Kind of changed his arsenal a little bit too. Kind of changed his approach, but he's getting more vertical ride on his fastball, and um, the throwing the slider a lot harder too. So he's going for like less sweep, but he's in the zone a little bit more with it, trying to um, get batters to not lay off of it. Because sometimes when the pitch is consistently out of the zone, batters are just going to not swing at it. But I think you know he's bringing in it enough to make them second guess and um, 
yeah, I like Daniel Lynch. I think if you just temper your expectations, you know, just don't expect him to be an, a rotation savior, but more of a, a stabilizing six or seven. I know he won't give you wins, so I think that's also something, too. You're going to have to look at your team and determine if you're low on wins. He might not be the guy for you. And maybe I'm taking too much out of these three starts, but he just looks like a different pitcher than he previously was. Yes, and speaking of wins, he pitches, of course, for the Kansas City Royals, who are now the <laughs> least winningest team in baseball. The A's passed them the other night when the A's won their sixth in a row, beat Tampa. And what a story that is, by the way. Uh, let's go over to your Baines. These are players you think are going to be overbid this weekend and maybe disappoint their bidders. Let's start again with a batter who could be a Bane. We're going to stay with the San Francisco Giants for this one. And Luis Matos was just called up from AAA. And for NFBC, you know, if anyone is unaware of how that works, uh, when a rookie um, comes up, you know, he has to play a game, he has to have an at-bat or an, an innings pitched just to be in the player pool, unless he was drafted. And like you we were mentioning before with Ellie in and dropped and in the player pool, um, he kind of lost some of his prospect shine in the last, you know, um, year and a half or so. And in 2022, he only hit 211 with 11 homers, 11 stolen bases at high A, but this season he has completely been on fire um, in triple A, 24 games, seven home runs, six stone bases. Um, but I think we're going to get a little too excited. Um, he's got a 390 BABIP in the minors. And also to um, like, like I mentioned, we have access to these stat cast numbers and he has seven home runs um, on only a 5.9% barrel rate and his max exit velocity is 107.5. And I, you know, 107.5 is about league average. So I don't see, and that comes on a 22% fly ball rate. So I just wondering if he's had some kind of park luck, um, because those numbers don't scream out, you know, go get it. Like, you know, Nolan Jones on the, Rockies was, you know, 18% barrel rate. We kind of saw that. Okay, like he's doing that in the minors. He's going to come up and smash. And again, I'll go back to the cost. I think he's going to be that truly that shiny new toy in Fab this weekend. And I just, I would want people to just temper it a little bit. For me, um, you know, I got a little bur burned by Vinny Pascantino last year. Not that he was, you know, bad, but I just spent too much money on him in Fab expecting him to be too much for me and I, I think I kind of missed out on the later months um cheap guys that were just playing all the time like guy like Joey Joey Manessis you know that would have been a good scoop and I could have went you know 30 40 bucks to get him when he was really playing every day and hitting homers and I couldn't do that so I think I would just temper my bids on Matos and just wait to see what he could do with um major league pitching because it's been such a quick turnaround and it could just easily be a 200 plate appearance hot streak <laughs> that we're banking on and so before you dump 200 bucks on him i i would just temper and, and, and that's not to say he's going to be bad I, I i just think that right now what i'm seeing it doesn't really match what i think everyone is going to expect from him in the major leagues when i saw he got called up of course i went and took a quick look and 
7% strikeout rate in AAA, That's 6% walk rate, yeah. which is kind of weird. You know, usually those are very low strikeout guys have pretty decent walk rates, but 6% is nothing to write home about. And it makes me think that what you have here is a guy who swings at a lot of pitches and just, he doesn't strike out because he makes enough contact not to strike out. But in the major leagues, that's a pretty tough road to hoe because uh, that weak contact isn't going to turn into as many base hits as it does in AAA. And uh, finally, who's a Bane pitcher for the weekend? I had a couple of guys listed for this, and one of them is kind of probably already on the tip of lots of people's tongues and on a lot of people's teams, and that would be Hayden Wisniewski. I know that he's had bad outings, so I don't know how much invested people would be in him, but I think that the consensus is still holding on to the fact that he might be something going forward, and I'm just a little worried that he's not that pitcher that we kind of thought he could be. And the other guy, I'll throw out another guy too because I did a little dive on him, but Denelson Lamette of the Rockies is back starting. Um, on his start on Sunday, he threw the most pitches he's had thrown since 2020, and the slider looked great. It got whiffed. It got swinging strikes. And I don't know if people are just going to jump on the name or they're just completely finished with him. You know, like he's such a, he's such an afterthought that they won't bother, especially because he plays in cores. But um I think if you're, I think if you are interested, um, you know, pump the brakes a little bit. Yeah. I've had Denilson Lamette on a couple of teams and I'm out just because of the experience. <laughs> yeah, the- you know, if, <laughs> if he's back to being great, good for him. And I'll applaud him and I'll slap him on the back if I ever see him, but he's not going to be on any of my teams. That's for sure. Ron Chandler, I think wrote about that in one of these intros to something about like the price to, uh, that you pay for food is like based a lot on the experience you've had, like at, at a specific restaurant. And that's funny you said that because that's it. Like he, he, he's got such a bad taste in your mouth. He can't do anything to, um, to get on your good graces. <laughs> yeah, I had escargot once and once was enough. We'll put it that way. And in this case, you know, five times was enough. Uh, Rob DiPietro's Boons, David VR of San Francisco and Daniel Lynch of Kansas City. His Baines, Luis Matos of San Francisco, Hayden Wisniewski of the Cubs and Denelson Lamette of Colorado. Rob, this has been terrific. Remind our listeners one more time where they can keep up with your work. Yes, you can catch me on Twitter. It's at Hitter. The Pull Hitter Podcast pod has a Twitter handle as well. It's at Pull Hitter Pod. I control the Twitter handle for the um, Launch Angle Podcast as well, and that's at Launch Angle Pod. You can listen to that podcast with me, Jeff Zimmerman, Rob Silver. We put out a pod every other week to the public and every other week to the Patreon, which is another um, benefit that you get for the for any tier that you sign up for the Patreon. You get the two extra launch angles that me, Rob, and Jeff are doing. And yeah, you can go over to patreon.com, put in pull hitter, and get a week trial. Um, like As I mentioned, I do five pods per week that revolve around the hot corner box score, nudes and notes. And when I, um, when I miss that day, I make sure to, you know, cover it in the next podcast I do. And then I do two lineup podcasts, which is for the Monday to Thursday scoring period and the Friday to Sunday scoring period. So basically I take about 45 minutes to an hour. I go through every matchup, all the pitcher handedness, and what could we possibly expect from who, who might sit 
you know, like I look at all the fringe decisions. I'm not going to tell you to start Ronald Acuna, but I, you know, I will try to advise you on if Eddie Rosario might sit or not versus the lefty he's got coming up, or if he's got two out of three lefties and they're in a row. What what did he do last time they faced two lefties in a row? Because the, I think that's a lot of the things that we have to like. Sometimes teams don't want to take that bat out of the lineup for two straight games, so he'll just sit one or the other. So I really try to break down as much of that as I can. So so yeah, you'll get about nine pods. Um, get seven pods minimum from me a week and then you'll get the extra launch angle ones. And then anything else I do, I throw it in there, Patrick. So it's a lot of work, but I love it. And, um, come check it out. Come give it a try for, for a week if you like. And, um, like I said, the discord is the, is, is such a big value to the to membership. And if you're not familiar with discord and it scares you, it's okay. I I've had plenty of people who signed up who, don't like technology <laughs> at all. And they were scared of it. They didn't know what this discord was, but uh, they got signed on and now they just completely love it more than anything. So, um, and basically if you don't know what a discord is, it's just a, a like a private server that, that um, handles a big chat. So to, our chat has about 208 people in it and we have different threads. So if you want to ask a question about starting lineup to have a lineup thread, that's where everyone dumps in your would you rather's. And I'm doing that on Monday and, and Friday, Patrick. I'm in there answering everyone's starter sets. Uh, I don't leave a question to go on unnoticed. And we have other people chiming in too. It's not just me giving the advice. We have several amazing players <laughs> from the NFBC, Phil Dusseau, um, Jeff Zimmerman, uh, Curtis Jones. So many different players in there. And we're all kicking kicking stuff back and forth to each other to help everybody. Um, and the funny thing is we play in each other's leagues too. So that's what's, uh, it's like wild how much we want to help each other through this. So I would, you know, I would really like to see anyone else come and give it a shot. It's a terrific set of resources for anybody who's especially who's interested in the NFBC. But as you said, Rob, it is also very useful for anybody who's playing any kind of fantasy baseball to get that player information. Jesus, this has been terrific. We talked last week on the launch angle pod where I was a guest talk again this week. Now that you're the guest here and both times, it's just a lot of fun and I appreciate you taking the time. Thanks very much. I appreciate you having me on Patrick. Thank you so much. Rob DiPietro writes a lot at the Deadpool Hitter Patreon and hosts the Deadpool Hitter and Launch Angle podcasts. Coming up, we have our Baseball HQ commentaries. The Minor League Minute, Frequent Flyer, and My Extra Innings are on the way. But first, one last reminder of the resources available to you when you subscribe to BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. We have comprehensive coverage of the prospects who can make or break your fantasy season. In the Daily Call-Ups report, this week the Baseball HQ scouting team looks at Dodgers right-handed starter Emmett Sheehan, whom Ray and I were just discussing, San Francisco outfielder Luis Matos, Texas right-hander Owen White, and Seattle right-hander Tyler Adcock. And don't miss this week's edition of The Eyes Have It, Baseball HQ's scouting podcast with Chris Blessing and Brent Hershey. This week, the guys have a supersized edition with almost two hours of prospecting goodness. Check out The Eyes Have It, available wherever you catch your pods, just part of our comprehensive prospect coverage, another great resource at BaseballHQ.com. 
I've mentioned a few of the resources on the site now at BaseballHQ.com, and they're just the tip of the iceberg of all the great content and tools you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. There's player performance validation in facts and flukes, news updates in playing time today, and roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow. We have buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers, fantasy market analysis in the market pulse, long shot suggestions in the speculator column, team injury reports, and player injury analysis, gaming strategy analysis for rotisserie, points leagues, NFBC, and alternative formats, and groundbreaking fantasy baseball research. We also have tools like the player projections updated every day, updated depth charts, daily dashboards, pitcher matchup planners, bullpen indicators, batter consistency reports, complete pitcher PQS logs, potential sergers and faders, and other leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. Add it up. Expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt here. Time now for our Baseball HQ commentaries. Coming up, we have the frequent flyer and my extra innings comment. And leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a look at Oakland catcher Tyler Soderstrom is Baseball HQ scouting team member Rob Gordon. Hopefully some of you who are regular listeners to the podcast were able to roster Giants outfielder Luis Matos after we covered him in last week's Minor League Minute. He looked very poised in his MLB debut on Wednesday going 1-3 for three as he fills in for the injured Mitch Hanniger. Hanniger underwent surgery to repair a broken forearm he suffered from a hit-by-pitch on Tuesday, and he could miss at least several months of action, if not the rest of the season. This week we turn our attention to the A's top prospect, catcher Tyler Soderstrom. A week ago, the Oakland A's had the worst record in baseball, but a seven-game winning streak leaves them, well, with only the second-worst record in baseball, one game behind the lowly Kansas City Royals. And despite the recent hot streak, no one is looking at this as a potential playoff contender, especially not their divisive owner, John Fisher. Still, the A's have some interesting prospects, but none look as ready as Soderstrom. The 21-year-old backstop has spent the entire season at AAA Las Vegas and has been one of the more productive hitters in the league. Through 53 games, Soderstrom is hitting 254 with a 3.08 on base percentage and a 540 slugging percentage with 15 doubles and 14 home runs and 213 at-bats, and that's after blasting 29 home runs across three levels last season. Soderstrom does have some swing and miss issues to his game and needs to continue to improve defensively behind the plate, but he has seen playing time at DH and first base and has the best raw power in the system. With Shade Langoliers and Ryan Noda currently holding down catcher and first base for the A's, there shouldn't be any difficulty in finding at-bats for Soderstrom once he is called up. Hopefully the A's desire to land a new stadium deal, either in Oakland or Vegas, won't cause them to delay rewarding Soderstrom with a call-up for much longer, and fantasy managers looking for production from behind the dish would do well to keep an eye on Tyler Soderstrom. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Corden. Baseball HQ scouting team member Rob Gordon has the Minor League Minute report regularly here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now it's time for the Frequent Flyer, where we look at a player who might be available on your league's free agent list and who has the skills to contribute to the success of your teams. Here with a look at Baltimore third baseman Jordan Westberg is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. He's been a wrecking machine all season, according to the Athletics' Chris Welsh on June 9th. 
Additionally, he's a premium athlete with a high baseball IQ, according to Baseball HQ's 2023 minor league baseball analyst. So he's basically a smart, athletic wrecking machine, right? Well, consider this. Through 59 games, 24-year-old Baltimore Orioles wrecking machine Jordan Westberg, who also plays third base in a few other positions, is currently batting 292 at AAA with 17 home runs, 5 steals, and a 952 OPS. Even Baseball HQ's 2023 baseball forecaster perhaps echoes the smart athletic wrecking machine theme by suggesting that Westberg's bat speed, power, hitting acumen, and defensive skills should give him a lasting major league career. Let's face it, that's a pretty good combination. Others are recognizing it too. He's an everyday player for somebody right now, the Athletics' Keith Law recently told Baltimore Sports Radio's The Vinny and Haney Show on 105.7 The Fan on June 6th, perhaps speculating on a possible Westberg trade. Nevertheless, Westberg is not currently on Baltimore's 40-man roster, and conceivably Westberg is likely currently blocked at third base by Gunnar Henderson for the foreseeable future. That's why 24-year-old Baltimore Orioles wrecking machine, Jordan Westberg, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth a flyer if he is still available in your league. Even so, Westberg, the Orioles' Brooks Robinson Minor League Player of the Year award winner last September after belting 27 home runs with 12 steals through two levels of the minors in 2022, appears to be close to a call-up according to many analysts. According to Baseball HQ's 2023 baseball forecaster, Westberg's versatility may be the ticket for him to get to the big leagues as long as he can play all over the diamond, including second, shortstop, third, and both corner outfield positions. Then again, according to AAA Norfolk hitting coach Brink Ambler, as reported on June 16th by the Athletics' Dan Connolly, there's one other thing that's benefiting Westberg in the minors. Westberg is learning how to be the man, the player the opposition focuses most on getting out, according to Ambler. Handling that is a skill in itself, Westberg's hitting coach said. Yet even Orioles general manager Mike Elias admits that Westberg is banging hard on the big league door, according to Connolly's June 16th article on The Athletic. So don't be left out in the cold by waiting too long to add smart, versatile, athletic Baltimore Orioles wrecking machine Jordan Westberg, who plays all over the diamond. He's everywhere as our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has his frequent flyer comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Extra Innings, my weekly comment on baseball and fantasy baseball, and this week I want to have another Extra Innings quiz, and this time we'll be looking at the year-to-date standings. Remember, no peeking, and if you get all the questions right, keep it to yourself. Question 1. In the divisional standings as of Thursday night, the first-to-last ranking in one division is also in alphabetical order of their team names. Which division is so... Orderly. The National League West is led by the Diamondbacks at 41 and 28, a great season so far, and following behind the Diamondbacks, in alphabetical order, the Dodgers, Giants, Padres, and Rockies. Question 2. 
This one's pretty easy if you just use process of elimination. We know the AL East is a beast, with four teams above 500 and the Red Sox just half a game under. But which three other divisions have three teams each above 500? Well, you know it ain't either of the central divisions where only the leaders are above 500 and the Brewers are right at 500. So that leaves the American League West, the National League East, and the National League West. Question 3. In the combined overall Major League standings, as shown at BaseballReference.com, four teams currently have one loss percentages over 600. Tampa and Atlanta are two. Who are the other two? Baltimore is second at 632, followed by Atlanta at 623, and finally Texas at 618. Question 4. The other end of the scale, only three teams have one loss percentages under 400. As we'd expect, Oakland and Kansas City are two of them at 265 and 268. Who's the third? Well, if you said Colorado... You're wrong. It's St. Louis, whose 391 one loss record, their 27 and 42, is third worst in baseball. If you're keeping score, St. Louis is still nine games ahead of Oakland and eight and a half up on Kansas City. Question five Which team has the best winning percentage in one run games, and which team has the worst? The top team in close games is Milwaukee, whose 10-4 record in those close ones is a nifty 7-14 win percentage. That's well ahead of second-place Toronto, who weigh in at 6-47. The worst team in one-run games is Miami, whose 5-17 mark is a 2-27 win percentage, just a tad worse than San Diego at 2-50. Question 6. These next two questions have to do with Pythagorean one-loss records, which use an algorithm to calculate how many wins and losses a team should have based on their runs scored and their runs surrendered. So, who would be in first place if Major League Baseball used Pythagorean win-loss instead of actual win-loss? And who'd be the worst? The Pythagorean leader would be Tampa, whose 50-22 Pythagorean is 694, exactly the same as their actual record. The worst team by Pythagorean would be Oakland, whose 268 is also an exact match for their actual performance. Question 7. BaseballReference.com also presents a luck metric, which is games actually won compared to games that should have been won according to the Pythagorean calculation. Which team has been the luckiest, with the most wins above Pythagorean? And which team is the unluckiest, with the most wins below Pythagorean? Well, this year's Golden Shamrock belongs to Miami, who have seven more wins than their Pythagorean says they should. The worst, which might not surprise you, St. Louis, who have six more losses than they should have, and six teams are right where they deserve. Tampa and Oakland, as noted earlier, plus Colorado, both New York teams, and the White Sox. Question 8. The test of a solid winning team is often said to be how it performs against other winning teams. Only one team with a losing record overall is above 500 against winning teams. Who is it? (laughs) 
The under 500 overperformers against winning teams is Cleveland. They're at 471 overall, but 520 against teams above 500. Question 9. The season ebbs and flows, as we all knows. In the last 20 games, which team has the most wins and which team has the fewest? Miami has gone 14-6 and six in their last 20. They're one game ahead of Atlanta, Cincinnati, and Tampa in that regard. Kansas City, however, has just won four of their last 20, putting them two games behind Detroit and St. Louis. And question 10. Gotta win those home games. Two-thirds of all teams are above 500 at home, led by Tampa's 816 win percentage at home so far this year. They're 31 and 7. That's 149 points better than second place LA at 667. Four other teams are also above 600. Texas and Baltimore are two of them. Who are the other two? The other two teams who love them some home cooking are Philadelphia at 633, they're 19 and 11, and Miami again at 618, 21 and 13. And finally, bonus question. If you get this one right, knock a wrong answer off your sheet and give yourself an extra point. St. Louis, Washington, Kansas City, and Oakland have the four worst home records and are 314 combined. They're 43 and 94. Who has the fifth worst home record? The New York Mets have just 16 wins at home and 23 home losses. That's a winning percentage just over 400, and the fifth worst in baseball. And that's our quiz. Hope you did better than 500 and got some interesting tidbits. For BaseballHQ.com, I'm Patrick Davitt. I have my extra innings commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, June the 16th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 21 of the 2023 fantasy baseball season. I also want to thank our guest expert for this Friday full edition, Rob DiPietro from the Dead Pull Hitter Patreon and podcast and the Launch Angle podcast. Rob is a very successful NFBC player and analyst, and he's a great Twitter follow. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch news analyst was Ray Murphy. Our Minor League Minute commentator was Baseball HQ scouting team member Rob Gordon. And our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Davitt, your extra innings commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on Baseball HQ's subscriber forums. And remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to Apple Podcasts, Google Pods, Pocket Cast, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you catch your pods. Please leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It really does help us find new listeners and new listeners help us keep the podcast going. If your pod getter of choice doesn't find Baseball HQ Radio, please let us know about that or anything else on your mind by emailing bhqradio, all one word, at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday with another Friday Full Edition featuring Mike Gianella from Baseball Prospectus. And in the weeks ahead, we'll have more top-notch guest experts 
plus, of course, all the usual great stuff, our news analysis, and our Baseball HQ commentaries. That's Mike Gianella on next Friday's full edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. Talk with you again next Friday. And for now, so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.